when I worked with a bunch of smokers, I used to go out with them on their smoke breaks and just hang out and get yeah. yelled at. And I'd be like, they're sitting out here doing nothing every 40, like every four hours for 15 minutes yeah. to all have smoke breaks. Why can't I? <laughs> God damn it. Well, see, that's the funny thing. I had a mate who never, never smoked in his life, always came down with me, always hung out. And the thing is, is the others never really worked out he didn't smoke. They just thought that it was like, at that time, he wasn't having a cigarette, you know? And it wasn't until like a couple of years later that it was mentioned. Someone's like, wait, you don't smoke? And he's like, no, I never have. And like, you, you were always going for smoke breaks. He's like, yeah, I just got up and walked out with him. Ah, oh, smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I got told off for going on smoke breaks with smokers without smoking. <laughs> See, that's, that's the biggest problem, you know? <laughs> Stop rewarding. Stop rewarding this addiction. But you know, it is an, a healthy addition to your morning routine. Uh, an episode of the Halcyon Frequency podcast. Uh, this is episode 20, and it is airing May 29th, Sunday, 2022. Uh, I'm your host, and I'm blind, and I'm joined by Arch. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing quite well. It's a beautiful, beautiful sunny morning. No, afternoon now. I'm not used to it being afternoon when we do this podcast, but... It's a nice and chill 13 degrees, and sun's out. Already been out for a walk, so yeah, been good. It's about the same weather as here, actually. And uh, a, a first on this show, actually. We've had guest segments before, but we actually have our first uh, full episode guest, and we are joined by uh, a friend of mine, Tekud, from the realm of Dwarf Fortress. How are you? Howdy, y'all. I figured I had to do that as the only American person to maybe ever speak on this podcast. That uh, no, we do have two. We do have two Americans, but I don't think they've ever oh, okay. said howdy, y'all. Okay, well, I'm no, representing no. the country. Here I am, howdy, y'all. Anyway, <laughs> glad to They're be here as a full time guest. Not full time, like <laughs> full every episode. episode, full episode guest. Yeah, no, our Americans are very West Coast, so we don't get many howdies. Well, yeah. I'm not South, but I am Colorado, which is cowboy country still, so. Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to think, like, yeah, everybody's pretty, like, like, Jess isn't, like, West Coast, but she acts pretty West Coast. So, yeah, I just, I just assumed. Yeah. She didn't sound Midwestern. She didn't talk about how New York is the best. So, she and hasn't she said Kai didn't say yet. how to you yeah, and she didn't say howdy, y'all, so, you know, I figured she was West Coast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some of us uh, Midwesterners, uh, I'm not actually from Colorado, some of us Midwesterners uh, hide it pretty well, the, uh, the old Midwest accent. I've had people ask me if I'm from the Midwest, and it always just, like, hits me like a bus, like, really? <laughs> I think it's because they don't, because the people, they can't recognize any sort of, like, Canadian accent, so they just sort of guess the closest thing well, they can think of. People can be recognize a Canadian accent, but they recognize like the just north of Minnesota Canadian accent that just sounds like they're from Minnesota, and like yeah. the accents surrounding that area, like Central Canada and like Eastern Canada has an accent. Like when you hear the kind of jokey accents, like "Oh hey, what are you talking about, there, buddy?" and all that kind of stuff, that's a Canadian accent. Um, but over here in on the West Coast, like we we just sound like we're from California, <laughs> but like less drawl. We don't say like all the time. And uh, yeah. That kind of I, stuff. I, I thought that, so I always thought, first of all, I always thought that the Midwest had no accent because that was where I grew up. And then I was like, I moved to Colorado and I was, I, it was really icy out one day and I'm driving a forklift around and things are sliding around on the forks. And uh, uh, I forget exactly what someone said to me, but my response was basically, 
uh, we got an ice rink going on out there. And then I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> That's not what normal people say to each other. <laughs> and, and then I thought maybe, well, maybe West Coast doesn't have an accent. And so I was at an airport and a plane had flown in from California and I just could not stand hearing those people talk. I was like, who are you? And how do you get by in your life sounding so... Annoying is too simplistic of a term. It was like a, I don't know, it was grating, like hearing them laugh and joke about things. I was like, oh, you sound like a bunch of YouTubers. What? <laughs> it's a really good take, the bunch of YouTubers comment. But like, California is funny because California has like four accents. They have like country accent. They have like Valley Hollywood accent. And then they have downtown LA accent. And it, it like it gets denser the more the, cl the closer you get to downtown LA. And f me being someone in Vancouver, I'm told that I sound like people from California. And I go to downtown LA for event for an event or something or a trip, and everybody sounds like they're from another planet. It's very hard to explain without like being yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> and it is weird too because some some of those accents and. I think the California one really uh, exemplified it was they don't have these one, this one specific characteristic that you can point to and be like, that is what Californian people sound like. It's just this kind of overall sort of difference. Everything is shifted and the whole cadence is shifted just enough. And then you actually interact with them and you're like, oh, you do sound different than me. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, you can't like you can't imitate it very easily. It's not like the southern accent where you could just be like, you know, biscuits and gravy or something, you know, that was a poor example, but it, it, See, it, we just get we just get really bogan sounding Australians than me. You know. <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say, like, do do you guys have as much variety in your accents like between like New Zealand and Australia that you can just point oh, at yes. and be like, that's annoying sounding? The Kiwi accent is vastly different to the Australian accent. From, Surely you both know this. From, from over here, uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't tell the difference between Kiwi and South African, which might I sound know. really weird. but I have no reference for um, South African. I, I do South have a African reference for both little, of these. Yeah, yeah. South African is a little flatter. I find me, the, the Kiwi accent is almost lilting in the way it goes. It does have a sort of very musical tone to it that I quite like. It goes up and down, whereas South African or South African is just very, that was a very poor attempt. It's just very flat. Um, and they're, they're the biggest differences I found, I find. The Kiwi accent is different in the vowel pronunciation than Australian, right? So you Correct, have like a, yeah. a, a pin instead of a pen is a pin. Or something like that. And then also, every time I hear someone with a Kiwi accent, it sounds like they're really thinking very, very hard about everything they say. And everything is super deliberate and like, you know, I don't know. It just sounds so incredibly deliberate, their speech. Like the difference between <laughs> Dutch and German. One of them sounds like they care. The other one sounds Dutch. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, um... The biggest thing I've noticed is Australians tend to end a lot of statements like going up a little bit at the end. Like it's a question mark. Like if you listen to what I say after a long sentence, because I'm going to be really self-conscious of it now, 
um, you'll actually hear me go up at the end. And, you know, it's, it, it is like, you know, it's always like Australians are asking a question. <laughs> and then Canadians <laughs> will ask a question and not actually mean it as a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally just say, eh, at the end. Everything in Canada is a question. And sorry isn't an apology. That's it. Well, Canada's very questionable anyways. <laughs> the the Midwest is like that too. You know, when you say like, what the heck is this or something, it's not, that's not a question. You're not asking a question. You know, you know what this is. It's BS. That's what it is. That's why you're asking, what the heck is this? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my favorite word I've learned from Midwesterners is ope. Oh yeah. Like, ope. 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 Let me just I, squeeze I on it. past you. Oh, <laughs> that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's like, oops, but not oops. <laughs> oh, my bad. I never thought of that as a word. I always thought of that as like an yeah. exclamation. Not O-P-E. Oop. Not to be confused with the Greek. Opa. Nope. Well, maybe it should be confused <laughs> with the Greek. <laughs> yeah, that's, fa- that's fascinating. I never really thought of op as a word. I guess like that, that would be like thinking of eh as a word, which some people do. Yeah. But... It's not really a word. I, I can't imagine living my life without saying oh. Like, what do you do when you, like, almost hit somebody turning a corner? You just, like, look at them and stare them down? Like, you got to say oh. <laughs> that's, that's what the I'm... Finns do, is look at them and stare them down. <laughs> I'm Australian. We just swear. <laughs> Speaking of cursing, I don't think I... um, yeah. so something was uh, confirmed this morning uh, during a team meeting, Arch. We are, in yeah. fact, allowed to say uh curse words on this podcast we're just not allowed to say constant curse words and no uh r-rated film expletives so tldr um the two members of our stream team kiri and jess uh both have g-rated chats you can't curse at all um and uh so we kind of when we started this podcast like just aligned with that because that was their rules, so it's like, okay, we just go with their rules. Um, and then in the last episode, there was a, a spat at the beginning where I had to beep out a bunch of stuff. And Kiri just kind of came up to me and was like, that's a little silly. <laughs> you don't need to do that. And then I was like, but we do it for you. And her response basically was like, yeah, you can curse, it's fine. And so we asked Jess this morning, she was like, oh, if there's nothing like actually stopping us from doing that, yeah, you guys can curse. So we're allowed to curse as long as it's not heavy. Gotcha, As an gotcha. Australian, I'd just like to say thank fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I don't I actually don't curse as much that as most people I know in person. But I went uh, most of my life pretty much never cursing, but then uh I started working in the trades, so you know it kind of seeped in a little bit. Uh kitchens turned me into a cursing sailor. <laughs> Like, I was always um, dumb white C-word when I walked into work. So, yeah. (laughs) See, for me, um, being Australian, it is... I don't swear as much as people expect Australians to. But the problem is, is when I swear, it's natural for me, you know? Someone will be like, you swore, and I'll be like, wait, what? And, and, And that's the thing. Like, you know, Australians seem to have this real... Uh people seem to think that they'll be using the C word a lot. And that's never been like that for me. I've never particularly been a fan of, of, of that word. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, like I'll drop the F word, I'll drop the S word. You know, I'm trying not to go too extreme, but 
yeah, I, I can actually talk without it. <laughs> I I think I probably say C word more often than you, but I blame that on the, my days of playing Counter Strike because I used to play with a bunch of guys from Australia. So yeah, it just kind of oh look, it's rolls off. The funniest sometimes. thing when I jump into a group call and there's other Australians, all of my boganness comes back. You know, I I will sit there and and basically go absolute full bogan with them, which is basically Australian redneck. Um, but because I spend so much time talking with non-Australians or professional people, uh, it tends not to come out. <laughs> well, if I ever get the opportunity to mod the text files in Dwarf Fortress, maybe I'll uh, I'll hire you as help to to do some combat log. Uh, variations, you know? Because right now the dwarves are like, that was very satisfying, or like, oh, death, I fear not, or something. But I really need a dwarf to just be like, like, oh, fuck. You know, like... <laughs> did you, my leg! Did, did you ever see uh, community member Vinsati's page of dwarven curse words that he wrote? No. He took a bunch of words that are all in Dwarf Fortress and formatted them into, like, insults. Like cat herder was one, <laughs> and a bunch of other like various lines that would like like ale spiller. Um, there, there was. Ah, you're a mad cat herder. There, there was um, uh, a helmet squisher. There was a um, an elf looker. Uh, tons of like like words that would fit into like dwarven lexicon using words that exist in dwarf fortress, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless that means it's time for us to talk about video games. It's always time to talk about video games. Yeah. All right, we're going to go to a real quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the games that we've been playing in the last few weeks. All right? Well, hi there. Do you like video games? Do you like cats? Maybe even otters? Well, then, do I just have the place for you? FD's Otterly Cataporium, streaming live only over on Twitch.tv. Well, <clears throat> um, Hi. Hi, I'm FG. I play a wide variety of games Monday through Fridays at 9am GMT over on twitch.tv slash FG squared. I also have a very noisy cat named Panda, who for once is actually not being noisy. And our mascot is a cute little otter named George. So come on over and I hope to see you soon. Bye. And we're back with episode 20 of the Halcyon Frequency podcast. Featuring myself, Blind, Arch Plays Stuff, and our guest host, Tekud. Um, Arch, I, I hear that My Time at Sandrock released finally. Do you want to tell us about it? Yes, yes. So I actually, this is big first for me. Well, not a first for me, but it's one of the firsts. I did a sponsored stream this week of uh, a game. And that game was, as you may know, yes, little clap, uh, My Time at Sandrock. Uh, it's the sequel to My Time at Porsche. Um, it's a, you know, resource gathering, crafting, um, sort of villagey type of game, like sort of like Stardew Valley, but 3D and also very different, but that sort of mechanics, you know, you have a farm, you harvest resources, you make friends, you, I think you can romance someone. I haven't gotten that far. Absolutely amazing game. It just launched in early access, but. Like, as I was talking about it on stream, because I came in with it in a, all right, literally first day of early access. There probably hasn't even been any time for hot fixes. And it was so, so smooth, so polished. 
And, you know, there's, there's, a, as I was saying, there's a big reason for that. It is in the same world as my time at Porsche. It is using the same, like a lot of the same graphics and assets. Um, my time at Porsche was sort of like a beachy island place, whereas Sandrock is in the desert. But the premise is, you know, the world was destroyed through robots having an uprising. So technology is feared and you go harvesting through old, uh, old resource mines and such. This one, in this one, it was an old, uh, an old shopping mall. It, that's where you sort of go through and get the, the random computer parts and stuff. So yeah, um, it's an absolutely fun game and really, really polished and smooth. Like they, they've clearly learned so much from my time at Porsche and it's, it's everything you want a sequel to be, you know, it is the same mechanics that feel good. Plus those little quality of life changes that really have you coming away going, oh wow. Because like if any of you, um, ever play any resource games where you've got a base and you build things from there, we all know the struggles of, I've got to find the items that are in my chest somewhere so I can build with them. This counts all your storage items on the base for building, right? If it's in a storage container, it counts as in your inventory when you're crafting, which so is something that it's everyone wants. It's a bag of holding? <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's basically, you've got an inventory space, right? You can, you can put stuff at the base, but when you go to the crafting bench, it can be in those chests. It doesn't have to be in your inventory to craft with. Okay. Which, yeah, um, is one of the biggest frustrations I have because inventory management, inventory management is not one of my fortes. So being able to be like, okay, I'm just dumping everything in these chests. Don't have to worry about sorting because I very rarely have to pull something out. If I need to craft something, I just go to the table. It all counts as in your inventory. And well, if you've got quests, sorry. I was going to say, well, where is the joy in that? All I do when I play <laughs> Valheim is organize chests. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's the most fun part of the game. That's a problem I don't have. I disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, that's the thing. For me, it's not. Nah, it's like, I could literally, I have played like Valheim and such on stream. And sometimes it has been right. The stream is done. Before next stream, I need to spend a couple of hours sorting out my inventory so chat doesn't sit there watching me go through, trying to search what's in this inventory and such. And nearly every game I play like that, I always like, okay, what's a storage mod? Like uh, Stardew Valley has better workbenches where if you have a workbench attached to any chests, you can craft like that. And then you've got Terraria, which has the uh, magic storage, which is just... Every storage is in one spot. <laughs> and the same with RimWorld. I always put uh, stacks up. So everything can be contained in one spot. Because inventory management is not something I enjoy. So I have to put forward my comments on what I've seen of my time at Sandrock. So I, I didn't play my time at Porsche. I don't really enjoy those types of games. And I also yeah. will not play my time at Sandrock. However, I watched Bellinair stream the entirety of my time at Porsche. And uh, I was watching yep. him play some of my time at Sandrock this morning. And um, they have fixed my main problem with my time at Porsche. My time at Porsche had these character models with these dead eyes that didn't look directly at the character or the camera. They just kind of looked gazed off into the distance like they were 
on some sort of yep. weird psychedelic and then bobbed their head like they were about to eat you. And it was the most terrifying thing I think I've ever seen. It was like <laughs> so far beyond the uncanny valley that it went from like the uncanny valley past that into possessed doll. It like the characters in my time at Porsche are nightmare factory horrifying and I don't understand why nobody else sees it. Now they just look like Disney characters. So it's lovely. Yeah, I'm actually looking <laughs> at uh, I'm looking at some footage of the game right now and are you sure this is a post-apocalyptic story about a, yep. a society that fears technology because it looks yep. like that the looks next Rabbids movie. Yeah, it, it, they look like little children's movies, but they're like actually really dark post-apocalyptic nightmares. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I guess those people are all desperate colonists of a foregone, you know, civilization. And they are all weirdly showered, and their <laughs> hair is very well kept. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. No, it's 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 got a certain visual aesthetic, which I think, which I think, you know, is what you're commenting on. Might not fit the tone, but <laughs> no, it. It's it, like the it, Tonka it really brand does. of apocalypses. <laughs> you know, I would totally play Tonka post-apocalypse. Somebody well, there's always that. that idea that um, Thomas the Tank Engine was post-apocalyptic. I mean, Thomas the Tank Engine caused the apocalypse, probably. Have you seen that guy? Uh, Christ, he flew down from the sky and we screamed, Fustro died him, and he didn't go away. <laughs> so are you telling me that Elon Musk made self-driving trains and they became sentient and created God, if Elon an Musk would make and... trains, we'd be in a much better place right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now Thomas the Tank Engine is one of the sole remaining sentient creatures on planet Earth after a grand apocalypse. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember what it was. I would have to look it up. Um, where, where was it? Uh, the story goes that the island of Sodor is the steam engine's only safe zone on the scorched Earth where trains are cannibalized and sold off for scrap if they dare resist their all-powerful master, the Fat Controller. In one of the Thomas books, <laughs> called Stepney on the Bluebell Engine, a train called Percy says engines on the other railways aren't safe now. Their controllers are cruel. They don't like engines anymore. They put them on cold, damp sidings and then they c c cut them up. Uh, <laughs> so, Someone did yeah, world building on this. <laughs> But here's this the is here's what happens the really when DMs get bored. Here's the really important question: Have you seen the? Uh, did either of you watch the Thomas the Tank Engine spinoff show where they're all tugboats? I know um, it exists, but no, I haven't. Because that was it. what I was way into when I was five. <laughs> that was my favorite show I, ever. I used to draw fan art of that. My mom still has like pictures that I drew when I was like twelve of these boats. Or probably smaller we need than to... that, like eight. We need to 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 do this. Oh no! What are we doing? We need to do this. We need to get we need to get this this fan art. Uh, I I'm not going digging in my mom's <laughs> attic, but like, if I find them, I will take a photo and post it on Twitter. How's that? That's enough for me. I also have Donkey right. Kong fan art. I I drew the original Donkey Kong when I was a little kid, after playing the arcade game once. Anyway, my time at Sandrock. Yep, <laughs> that's right. That's a game. Jeez. That's what we were talking about. Post-apocalyptic no, really, mall something. Really beautiful game. And um, I had a lot of people come in going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how it is. And, you know, I'm waiting to buy it. And for me, it was just, it was really good because it's one of those ones where, you know, when sometimes like <clears throat> Bungie, 
um, release a new game that's a sequel and it's got all the mistakes of the old the old game and even look, misses some of the learnings from the old game. Like when Destiny 2 came out and it had all the same problems that Destiny 1 had before they fixed them. Um, this has learned a lot from my time at Porsche. It feels very similar. It looks very similar, which is great considering that, you know, it's the same world, the same things going on. And it just learns from that. And there's so many more improvements like the crafting thing, like, you know, bag space and inventory management and just so many little things that, you know, honestly, I just had an absolute ball with. Without knowing anything about it, it looks like if someone wanted to take the raft game raft that's what it's called and make stardew valley out of that they probably would have ended up somewhere around here yeah they kind of have that know. same color palette as as raft kind of it is a, it is a very vibrant saturated color palette um my favorite bit is that there's random monsters around and you've got like these yak moles which are yak camel cow things and then you've got roosters that fire rockets at you and they've got like a bandolier of fireworks and they wear pants. And do they uh do they sing Alice in Chains too when they're when they're coming <laughs> after? Can't can't say I know enough Alice in Chains to There's check. There's a song called Rooster. It would be very appropriate. <laughs> Um, I'm just looking at the Steam page. I just want to say that I think that Steam's algorithm is broken because it's telling me, similar to games you've played in the past, Project Zomboid and Doom. Well, Doom's post-apocalyptic. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> Are it, there it's demons in this game that you're not telling me about? This is a farming well, no, game. <laughs> it's post-apocalyptic in the sense that one second after midday is noon. You know, <laughs> Doom is very, very close to the post-apocalyptic. Like the apocalypse just happened; it's still ongoing, but it, it's it's post the start by a few minutes. This uh, one is two hundred years later. Yeah, so okay. true. Everything's dried up. I yeah, 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 yeah. So this Doom is the world that, come and gone. Yeah, this is the world that Doom guy achieves. You know, everybody gets really pastel and very. Pixar-ish, and everything's kind of happy despite the overall hopelessness and gloom of of the the between the lines, you know. We, we don't talk about Demos and Phobos. Regardless, though, I, I it is really nice to hear that um, people are at least like very positive on the uh, launch of my time at Sandrock. Like, I there's definitely I, I've seen some criticism flying around at it, but it's like the positives seem to outweigh the negatives. So that definitely seems to be a solid start. And they say that they want to be in early access for a year, and it seems to be about 25 bucks, so your regional equivalent. So uh, check out my time at Sandrock. Thank you very much, Arch. Um, I'm going to babble about World Seed for a little bit here. Have either of you heard of this thing? Nope. I can't say I have. Okay. Well, I, I went nuts. I'm playing an MMO. <laughs> Which is World Seed. Oh, what? I'm playing an MMO, yeah. But it's a very me MMO. By that, I mean it's turn-based, uh, siphoned off into your own sections. It's permadeath, and uh, it's it's not something where you actually have to see other players outside of a global chat. Um, so it's a turn-based hex grid um, with 
Okay, how the hell do I explain World Seed? World Seed is an MMO made by one person, uh, which was originally called World Seed, and it was six bucks on Steam. And uh, now it claims to be free to play, uh, it, which in a version that was called World Seed 2, where they changed it from squares to hexes, because it was originally just like a square grid, but they changed it to a hex grid and redid the engine and re-released it as World Seed 2. Um, and you know why that is, right? Why? Because hexes are better than squares? Hexagons are bestagons? Yes, this is true. Um, and renamed the old game to World Seed Classic and migrated all the old people's accounts over and everything. So, um, But it, it claims to be free to play on Steam, and uh, it's not. It's uh, $12 to buy it. Um, you can also rename your uh, your account for 6 bucks. Those are the two microtransactions in it, so it's pretty fair. Um, it's made by one person. And uh, there's a notice on the like front page of the game when you install it and launch it for the first time that says, this game is not free to play. Please don't leave us with bad reviews saying that we're scamming you. That's, that's, this is free to try. Um, which is what most of the negative reviews seem to be about. Um, but uh, essentially, it's, it's, it's a turn-based game where you start in like this little home village and you can move out of the home village, you, you walk out and you walk into a forest and you get three options. You can either explore the area and get some money for exploring. You can harvest the resource that's on that tile, or you can fight the creature that's on the tile. And you have those three choices on every single tile that you move into. Some tiles have skulls on them. If they have a skull on them and you move into that tile, you have to fight the creature before you can either take a loot drop from that creature or uh, harvest the resource that's on that tile. And the entire game boils down to going out getting resources or specific drops, going back to your home base, and crafting those resources to get better gear to go fight tougher monsters. If your character dies, you lose everything that's in your character's inventory and um, that character, and you have to purchase a new character with in-game currency. Uh, there's no way to buy in-game currency or anything. Um, and you will be constantly accruing currency and multiple characters, so at any given time, I have about three characters right now. Um, there's no XP, so you don't gain anything from just killing things. The only leveling up in the game is gear score. Um, but as you get further out, once you get outside of the first two rings, because there are these rings and um, every X number of tiles, they you pass them pretty quickly. You can move from the first ring to the fourth ring in a couple of like seconds just by clicking the button to move. When you get outside into the further out rings, you'll start finding dungeons. And dungeons, you line up and you queue up and... Other players can join in. You can either put an invite in the public chat. You could drop a get a link to send somebody an invite, or you can um, just like wait for other players to join. And then when they join, you go through a selection of fights and then fight a boss and then get reset at the beginning. Um, it's almost an idle game because all of the fights play out just based on gear score, and it's very low maintenance. But I've been like oddly obsessed with it over the past week right it's a very simple kind of procedural thing like you just kind of go through the motions of playing it but it has all of the elements that make an mmo an mmo minus the parts of mmos that i don't like where it just takes a billion years because it doesn't you can get a lot done in like 30 minutes if you're efficient there's one other element of this game that i'm missing that i forgot to mention when you use up a, a tile the tile gets a check mark on it. Once an hour, the entire world resets and all of those tiles become harvestable again. So you can run around in a zone at your level and harvest everything in a, I don't know, 10 minutes. And then an hour later, you can come back and do it again. But 
while you're getting while you're harvesting certain tiles, there's a chance that you'll get a rare drop, which is a world seed, which is the name of the game. You can then go back to your home base and plant that world seed and generate a completely new world based on the biome that that world seed is tied to. So if it's a fire seed, you plant it, you'll get all stuff for the the dwarven characters. So you'll get fire resistance drops, you'll get fire-based gear, fire-based gems, which you can in inscribe into your armor to get fire-based effects. Um, and then that world is random. But when you decide to uh, uh, uproot that, that world seed and go back to the overworld, that world is destroyed and gen regenerates itself. And so when you plant your next fire seed, you'll get a different layout for that fire realm. So it's like a weird mix of a roguelike and MMO, and it kind of feels like you're playing a mud, but it's kind of none of those things, but all of those things, and it ticks all the right boxes in my brain. So I really like it. It's funny because you you said that, that you're playing an MMO, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm very surprised. And you were like, but it's a very me MMO, and I'm like, now I'm very confused. Then you explained it, and I'm like, ah, this all makes sense. How much socializing do you do on that game? Socializing? I mean, there's a world chat. There's people talking in there. No, I no, no. It. How much do you do? <laughs> I Do you play it like an MMO, or do you play it like a solo game? I have not spoken with another player yet. Yeah. So. Sui refuses to believe that it's an MMO. She popped into my chat and, go, and goes, where are the people? And I go, well, there's a world, there's a chat there. I'm ignoring it. It's fine. Yeah. Sui plays Final Fantasy 14. So, you know, yeah, she, she, she comes from that top 1% of, oh, if there's not a crowded room, yeah. it's not an MMO. I, you, I, I never talk about it, but I also play Batmud. How are you not open to playing Worm? It's I would love to play Worm. Graphics. I don't have a full. I don't have time for another full time job. <laughs> That's why you got to get the private server version and just boost all those rates up. It's like people when but they then, tell me, "Oh, why don't you play Factorio?" I'm like, "Because I play Dwarf Fortress. What do you expect? Me? To, what do you think I'm made out of free time here?" Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, at, at the end of the day, I, I'd love to play Worm. I probably would love Worm Online. And I think I've said this to you before, Arch. I would probably adore Worm. I don't have the brain capacity for another game like that. Th this works for me. World Seed works because it's solo maintenance. I can get everything that I want out of an MMO minus all of the tuft that ruins MMOs for me. Other people. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I I understand it, and like I play Elder Scrolls almost entirely solo. Like I have a, a a guild that I'm with, I hang with them, but I don't do events with them. I, if one of them's looking to run a dungeon, I'll be like, oh, they are, I'll come along. But I play solo, you know, and I enjoy the solo playstyle. Having to deal with other people in games is painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other people which, which are pain. Is, which is sad because I used to play Maple Story and you know, way back when don't make that face. Um <laughs> I played it for, I, I played it for an hour. I got banned from Maple Story. Oh, Sounds like you played it too much. And also banned from Nexon games for fifty years. What for? Only fifty did years, you, really? Did you 50 hack? Years, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you bet you. I was hacking. I was walking into non-PVP zones and one-tapping people with 
bugged gear. <laughs> you bet I was hacking. <laughs> I was a small child, okay? I, I love everyone I talk to about MapleStory. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to play that. I used to hack. I'm like, I'm beginning to think that no one didn't hack in MapleStory. Some of um, us were just good at getting caught. Yeah. No, I used to just hang with my friends who did. Um, so, like, oh, hey, I need this item. And they're like, okay. And then they'll come up to me two days later and go, here's this really rare item that, frankly, you can only get if you're sitting there do doing something to kill everything on the map every second. But back to the point of being social, there used to be a town in there called Hennessy's. And people would hang around there. That was like the just place to hang around. Channel One Hennessy's. And everyone started being called Henny Hoes because, you know, they that would be where you'd go with all your cosmetics and you'd just show off. And I used to spend so much time just hanging around there with my cosmetics showing off. And now I can't stand people in MMOs. And sometimes I look back and go, you know, 16 years ago, what changed? Why do I... Why do, I, why do I hate socializing so much anymore? That's because you were the obnoxious one and you didn't realize it. Just spend five seconds at Lumbridge Castle in RuneScape and you'll, you'll be like, I was, I've been here before. Like, who are these people? What's going on here? I don't, I don't have 10k gold to buy a girlfriend. <laughs> right? That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, when I played <laughs> RuneScape originally in, like, middle school, you'd log on and people would be like, oh, you know, I want to trade you. Now, maybe they were doing this, and I just don't remember, because I was blind to it as a kid. But now I, <laughs> I would log on, and it's just literally a bunch of nonsense. Like, like oh, you know, uh, pay me to uh, be your girlfriend, or pay, you know, this or that. I'm like, what are you talking? What is anybody here talking? Aren't you playing the game? No one here is playing <laughs> the game. You're all just uh, being weird about, uh, with each other, about being each other's girlfriends and buying stuff. Like, you can't even do that. You think that's, that's not even weird. a mechanic in the game. <laughs> you should go on VR chat sometime. <laughs> oh, I, I do spend some time. I've been to a club on, on VR chat, like a rave club. It's pretty interesting. VR chat terrifying. manages to be the yeah the most terrifying thing for me, but also the most like I, I'm not sure if awe inspiring is, but like it's amazing what they've managed to create. And then it's also terrifying what they've done with that creation. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very interesting VR chat because if we're talking about social interactions in games, usually games facilitate social interaction through some kind of mechanics, whether it be typing in messages and they pop up above your head or trading or like emotes where your character will dance or something like that. And these sort of middlemen between you and the other person create a social environment that doesn't really include your personal social dispositions. Because you could, you know, I could show up at a club in whatever World of Warcraft or something and make my character do, you know, breakdance or whatever I want. Uh, and I don't care. But in VR chat, I, I went to this club. Uh, and I found myself standing by the door and not talking to anybody. And then I realized this is such a good social interaction that I've become an indoor kid all over again. I've gone full <laughs> circle. Like, I don't even want to be here because this is so effectively social that I don't like being here. 
The game's so social that you don't want to play it. Yeah, because I was like, I don't like bars. I don't like clubs. So I came to this VR club thinking, oh, but it's virtual. And then I got there and I'm like, but this is so real that I just actually don't like this. I'm going home. I'm going to go do something else. Take this headset off and go drink alone. (laughs) Right. Oh, even games have become too social for me. To me, it's not that games become too social. But for for me, the, the thing that truly scares me about VR chat is that VR chat is the it, it's finally man like everybody's trying to create a video game that's real right like that's just seems to be the obsession with a lot of game creators Second and vr chat baby. is the first example that i can point at where it's just like oh that's just human interaction but it's human interaction minus like the border of appearance you know like there's it's really difficult to walk up and speak to certain people. Like for me, I walk into a bar and there's a really pretty girl. I'm not going to go talk to her because that's terrifying. And her boyfriend will probably beat me up. So what uh, you walk into VR or you put on a headset and you are whatever your avatar is, that barrier is gone. And that is terrifying to me. Truly, truly terrifying. Because yeah. on one hand, I'm somebody completely different. But the person that I'm talking to, I don't even... Like, I get creeped out when someone puts up a Kickstarter for their video game and they don't use their real name. Because I, I fear, you're using an alias, you're going to vanish. That is multiplied by 50,000 when it's a person I'm talking to right in front of me. Yeah, and it's so it's it's very real. Like, like I was saying with the club experience, like, it's just so... Uh, it brings all of your real social, whether it's anxieties or just disinterests or whatever it just brings your real social self into the situation and now all of a sudden you're like this is just like this is just like talking to people you know this is like talking to real people i'm not playing a game anymore and sometimes better sometimes worse you know what they say you can never trust a cat girl it's true i thought you were gonna say you can never trust a cactus and i was about to agree with you (laughs) that's why you go for the the fox girls okay they're always (laughs) trustworthy I, you know, I, I would I just like to remind everybody that the best thing that Death Stranding gave us was a very, 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 very well-rendered Monster Energy can, which is a playable character in uh, VR chat, if you know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Like, the, the character design in VR chat is so, so cool. Like, it, it's always funny when whenever VR chat comes up, because I've got a friend who is just so into it, like... They're into the scene. They are a DJ at one of the clubs. Um, and, you know, they go through all of that. And every time the concept of the metaverse comes up, or people looking at um, Ready Player One and going, oh my God, imagine if that was a thing. Everyone in VR chat's just like, yeah, yeah, Show imagine. up. We're already doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Come hang out with my Fox Girl clan and be a monster can (laughs) stuff scares me people scare me how did we get here what were we talking about world seed i think um yes yes tekken elden ring go uh okay uh that's actually a pretty smooth transition because we're talking about limiting social interaction on a multiplayer game uh fromsoft has always had a really great way of doing that i've been playing a lot of elden ring it's the first triple a game i've bought in i don't know how long maybe five plus years i don't typically shell out for these big name games uh but i did play dark souls and dark souls 2 so i was like i know i like the from soft game so i picked it up and uh 
you know, everyone was raving about it, and it's actually pretty good. And it's been distracting me from all of my productive pursuits for the last uh, two weeks or so. But I think it's very nice. Elden Ring has this excellent, almost, you might even say perfect balance uh, of exploration and freedom and punishment and reward where it's very difficult to find yourself stuck in a bad place in the game. It's also very difficult to find yourself just cruising through any part of the game. You're always challenged a little bit, and sometimes you want to bring in friends and stuff and other people to play with, but luckily there's no friend lists and they don't, they don't try to add you or anything. You know, you just beat the boss and then it kicks them out of there. And Maybe there's like a website or something where it's like lost connections for Elden Ring. <laughs> but... It's Craigslist. <laughs> but it's a fantastic game. And I mean, I've, Elden Ring's probably not the first, first pick, most fitting genre for a, a podcast like this that's usually revolving around indie games and stuff. But uh, FromSoft does have a very specific flavor to their games, which kind of feels indie-ish to me. Obviously, it's not an indie game, but their commitment to this exact sort of experience instead of trying to umbrella out and be like Call of Duty or something. Uh, it really feels good. You know, it feels... Uh, uh, I can't think of the word. Just are you, focused. Are you, are you trying to say that, like, instead of, like, cohe- ad- adhering to what everybody else is doing, they, they, they have a design and they're sticking to it, I think might be what you're trying yeah. to say. Yeah, and when people talk about FromSoft, just doing Souls remakes, or, oh, they're just reskinning a Souls game. They kind of are, but the thing is, if you've played Dark Souls, Elden Ring is very much the same, but I really applaud them because they made this game that was really good, and they, it was original, too, the way that it works, the mechanics, and it were very original. And instead of saying, okay, well, how do we make this more like other games for the sake of uh, expanding it or a profit or something they said what if we did these five things different i got an idea let's yeah. make the game again but this time we'll make it with these five things different because i bet that would be better and then they did it again so, and now they did it again with elden ring so there's 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 one thing i want to say just as a clarification i'm not a fan of playing souls like games i am a chill chill gamer that likes to be able to turn my mind off and I don't like raging at games. And Dark Souls is very much one of those really, really punishing games that, you know, by the time you win, you feel good because you've gotten past all of the having your ass handed to you. Whereas I like the I put in the work, I took all, took all the steps and now I've done that. What them constantly reiterating the mechanics like that allows them to do is to really innovate with the story and and build these worlds. Like, you know, they got Miyazaki and... Um, who was that other guy? The guy that never finishes anything. Oh. George uh, R. Martin. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, you <laughs> know, the big focus of Elden Ring wasn't check out the really cool mechanics. It was check out the world we've built. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so, I'm... like... Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, they had this awesome game... And they were like, it's awesome. Everybody knows Dark Souls is awesome. But I feel like it would have been better if maybe it was more of an open world. I got an idea. Let's remake it. But this time, 
it'll be an open world. Mostly the same game. We're just going to make it a little bit better. And I bet you they're going to make another one. And it's going to be different in just a few ways that make it better. And I applaud yeah. them for sticking to this thing they've created and just just tweaking it, just layering on like a little more icing every time, you know? It's just going to be a cake that's just made of icing by the end of it. It's going to be delicious. While the two of you have been talking about uh, Elden Ring, I, I've been looking for a screenshot or a, uh, a, an image, and I can't find it now. But a while ago, uh, there was this image that was flying around of Call of Duty, and it was like the last five Call of Duty games, and it was like a screenshot of each of them side by side, and it just said, spot the difference. What's the most recent one? And they all look identical. So if you really want to talk about like reskinning the same game every year, <laughs> um, we shouldn't be pointing at friends from Soft. We should be pointing at Activision. <laughs> but yeah, See, um, that's yeah. that's the funny thing with um, with Call of Duty as well, because yeah, they went through a real phase where it was just okay. We're releasing. I think the joke was even like you know, let's just get away, get rid of all pretense. Just like how you can get like, you know, NBA 2K22 or NBA, you know, or uh, FIFA, such. just have COD 22, COD 23, uh, you know, just, just accept there's that there's almost, a There's yearly... probably close to 20 of them now anyway, like they're not even that yeah, far off. Like, no, 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 I just mean like a yearly release. No, I know what you mean. You know, basically for that season. And, you know, so there's always that joke, but then there's also the, uh, you know, how it started and they were talking about like, you know... Call of Duty is going to be like a real gritty one that that doesn't shy away from the horrors of war and is not designed to glorify it. And we want to make it real true to Earth. And then there is like you know Call of Duty now, and it's uh, Warzone players are, are, um, are farming King Kong's testicles for easy experience. And it's like hmm. with a helicopter. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you take the helicopter and you fly between God King Kong's legs because they have a Godzilla and King Kong um, event where and halfway then... through the match, Godzilla and King Kong walk across the map and punch each other, and then you can shoot at them for extra points. But if you take a helicopter and you ram it into the side of King Kong, you get points. But the easiest way to do that is you go in between his legs and you fly right up in between his legs and you just sit there and it just levels you up like nobody's wow. business. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I think... I don't know too much. I don't have any insight on the industry, but what it feels like to me is that these first-person shooters like Call of Duty have entered a sort of arms race or not necessarily an arms race for features because otherwise they'd be a lot better, right? But uh, it's sort of like an arms race for uh, uh, relevance where Call of Duty needs to make another Call of Duty game in two years because next year someone else is making a new version of their game. And they're going to move, all the player base is going to be like, well, this one's newer. And then Call of Duty's like, well, we have to be newer again. So release another one. Like the FIFA e and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. No one wants to play an old Call of Duty game. And, and the weird thing That's... is people accuse FromSoft of reskinning their games. <laughs> <laughs> like... oh, yeah. what, what I like is when there's like a new version of Call of Duty and the same bug comes in as the old version. And you're like, well, <laughs> while, while we're talking about Call of Duty stuff, did you know that Call of Duty ran on the Quake engine until up right up until Call of Duty Ghosts? Like, I did not. The engine they, they, were, they made Quake on? Yeah, they were still running on Quake 4 until after Ghosts. Ghosts was the last Call of Duty game to run on the Quake engine. Hmm. Which is just wild. <laughs> It's like somewhere deep down inside was like this old code that made Quake. 
They're running That's on different funny. tech now, but it was just bizarre to read about that. But yeah, I mean, so, but when it comes to like FromSoft, right? Like, yeah, sure. A lot of the game is from the last game, but only the good parts. And, you know, they introduce these new things that are really, really helpful. And they even do it from their other games, like Bloodborne. Some of the features in Elden Ring are from Bloodborne. And they were like, hey, this worked really well. Let's just stick it into Dark Souls. Dark Souls is only going to get better every single time we make a game. And, uh, and Arsh, you had said before about not liking it because you're a chill gamer. Uh, and I, I wanted to get this comment in. In my opinion, or from the way I feel when I play Dark Souls, I'm more relaxed playing, well, Elden Ring than when I play Dwarf Romantic. No joke. When I'm playing Elden Ring, I feel 100% in control of my own fate. And if I die 10 times to a boss, whatever, man. It's just a long fight, and occasionally I die throughout it. But I'm there. I'm pressing the buttons. I'm losing because I'm screwing up. No big deal. But then I get into games where it's, it's chill because it is relaxing music and ambiance and whatever. But what the game is actually doing is dealing me a hand. And when games deal me a hand, I'm like, come on, game. Really? You're going to screw me like this? More water tiles? I need train tracks. I told you, train tracks. And I'm like, oh, God. But, it, you know, in Elden Ring, I'm like, oh, I died. Whoops. I love it because I there's basically... <laughs> there's, there's two types of people who play games. Those who think Dorf Romantic is the most beautiful, relaxing game ever... And those who think it has been sent by, you know, whatever vengeful god out there has decided to curse them. And there's no in-between. There's no like, oh, yeah, it's all right. You know, I play it. But oh, this, it's always like, no, I hate it. It gets me so angry. I'm so anxious. And then everyone's like, I'm so relaxed. I could cry while playing it. Uh, I just want to live in it. Like, I built this little village and it's got a train nearby. I, I honestly am so the opposite yeah, because I, I know I'm a bad player, right? That's the problem I have. I'm not particularly good at games. I, I've never been someone that's like, oh, I've, I don't think I've ever played a ranked game of anything and ever actually ranked up. It's... You know, <laughs> it's really interesting to me because, like, I have no interest in playing from soul from soft games because of the style of game. Like, it it doesn't lend itself to my skill set. Like, I'm not good at the hand eye coordination. Like, I I look at those games and I understand like where the difficulty is and why people enjoy them, and also why I have almost no interest in actually playing them. And I I played Dark Souls one, so I I do have some base knowledge. I got pretty far in, but never finished it, and. So I, I have, like, that knowledge of why I wouldn't like it. But what baffles me is when people are constantly talking about the difficulty. Because I'm a disabled person, and playing those games is very difficult for me. But, like, I the, the difficulty curve, it's, it's like playing a rhythm game. It's a matter of, like, understanding the patterns and adhering to them. Whereas everybody goes on about how big of a big kid gamer they are because they're so great at Dark Souls. And I'm just like... All right, I'd like to see you scream when you lose 17 hours of a Caves of Cud run because you got shot by an invisible boss that you thought was dead already. Mm hmm. Yeah. Because I've done that. That's I feel... rage inducing. <laughs> I feel like Dark Souls or FromSoft games are very, like, they're difficult in the way that learning to play guitar is difficult. Sure. If 
you don't like to invest yourself into trying and learning and taking time to get better at something, then you probably won't like it. But lots of people, if they want to learn how to play guitar, will happily go through years of getting better through the course of being bad. And so a FromSoft game puts you 100% in control of your results. It is, that's, yeah. Elden Ring is the best game I've ever played in terms of balancing with the player. It doesn't push you around, but it doesn't let you push it around. And so... Like, that, like that's it. There's telegraphed moves. You, that, that guy, let me solo her. He's someone that just knows the move sets. Yeah. You know, yeah. he comes in, he sees the moves coming, he gets out of the way, he knows when to attack, when to push. And yeah, I do think there is a difference with that versus being different being good at COD where you are literally up against a random enemy because it's players. You yeah. know, yeah. there's no telegraphing. The just Yeah. And even if you know the meta, it's usually if you come up against someone else who knows the meta, it's, you know, how quickly can you react to a situation? You know, um, what's your loadout? What have you got? You know, and all of this. And that's where, for me, I find myself, like, I don't enjoy playing those games ranked either. Anything that sort of challenges me as a person, just... I challenge me as a person enough, you know? I challenge me as a person <laughs> by getting out of bed in the morning. That's it. That's it. Come on. Come on. Let's get up before midday. We got this. So, Arch, <laughs> uh, did you get up before midday today and play some Apico? I think that's how you say it. Uh, I think Apico? it's Apico because Apico? Apico? it's... Apico? Um, when you're talking about bees, it's apiculture and apiary. Wow. So, Apico kind of makes sense to me. I'm not going to claim to be an expert of, in this kind of subject, honey. <sighs> Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I played this game earlier this week. Absolutely amazing game. Um, Apico. It is... Everyone that came in was like, oh, so they made the um, the beekeeping, uh, the forestry pack from Minecraft into a solo game, did they? And so it takes a lot of... Lot of uh, I guess if you've played Minecraft and you've played the forestry one with all the beekeeping stuff, you'd understand a lot of the mechanics of it. Basically, it is your goal is to repopulate the bees, bring the bees back. And when you start, there's only a few species. You then can crossbreed them, um, and then you can discover others through through various means. And it's it's a fun little game in which really gets into the the sort of nitty gritty with um with beekeeping so you know you're breeding bees to, and putting them in hives to make uh honeycomb if you want honey you've got to go into a different hive if you want to just breed them there's another hive for that and the goal is to basically cross breed them and start releasing them to repopulate the world with the bees and it's a real fun chill game that is like it's like a um it's like a Isom not isometric, but it's a top-down view, like a three-quarter view, uh, 2D game in an open world with that's procedurally generated. And it is again just so chill. You go around finding bees, you then breed them yourself. You can unlock certain things by uh breeding new bee types, like 
you get the common bee and then you get the forest bee. You breed them to get breed them together, not breed them, them together. together. <laughs> <laughs> you breed them together by basically putting them together to create a queen because to make a queen. And then you can oh, get so like the verdant bee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Smash them together uh, it, enough it, and they become a mom. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's okay. So it's not scientifically accurate. How does the bird but, uh, factor into this discussion? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now. Oh, no. I'm not talking about the birds and the bees on this stream. Um, yeah, we're allowed to swear now. We should like dive in feet first, necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Q next week's stream. So we're no longer allowed to swear because we got <laughs> carried away with it. Um, but yeah, so absolutely beautiful game. And uh, some proceeds of the game go towards uh, the Save the Bees Foundation as well, which I thought was really good. So they've even got a website that's in there that's like showing like all of the things that are happening with bees over the world. And so it's really, really cool. And plus you can make mead. That that's basically I was about how to you ask, make. Can you make alcohol? Well, okay, okay. It's called Apicola, but you literally put water no. and honey in a keg, and then you take what's out of it later and then bottle it. So can I know, mod I the game that... to say mead instead of cola? <laughs> Look, I was gonna thumbs down it if I couldn't get any mead out of this. Honestly, I was gonna leave an angry <laughs> review. So my I, I I've been aware of this game for some time, but my first realization that it had been released was because I followed the developer of this on Twitter and they posted a tweet of a negative review that literally just said one sentence, woke leftist trash. And the dev had like a screenshot of this uh, review with the thumbs down and says, hey kids, want to play any woke leftist trash? <laughs> the eyes emoji. Um, so I was like, oh, okay. That's you know hilarious. why they probably called it woke leftist trash? Because they have pronouns in the titles of the people's because names? Because they have pronouns when you yeah. talk to people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine being <laughs> so annoyed by it. <laughs> yeah. Imagine actually getting mad, or, mad at something that, like, affects you. <laughs> Doesn't affect you. People need to get their priorities straight. But it's the internet, you know? Their priorities were out of whack as soon as they logged on. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's Apico. That, that, that game looks adorable, honestly. It, it really is, and it's a lot of fun. And it's it, it's kind of funny because the professor hates you for some reason. Like, the professor's like, I know everything about bees, you suck. And then the the smith who also lives with him is like, I'd love to help you, but the professor hates you. Um, and then you talk to your, your granny all the time. She's like, oh, you're doing great, sweetie. I wish your grandpa was here to, to see. Aww. And that's like it. <laughs> you know, they're the only people you talk to. It's, it's just constant reassurance followed by someone beating you down and then someone going, I'd love to help you, but the other person hates you. <laughs> um, I was keeping bees when you were still in diapers, kid. You're not going anywhere in life. Grumble, <laughs> grumble, grumble. Oh, you've played the game too. I'm pretty sure he said something almost exactly like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's an absolutely beautiful game and yeah, I'm, I'm actually really pleased with the choice I made for it. Cause I was, I had no clue what I was going to stream on Tuesday and I was like, I was looking through some games and I went, Oh, this one looks fun. I'll buy that and try that. Did not regret. 
I, I do think that this is kind of fantastic because a couple of weeks ago, Arch, you were complaining that you had nothing to stream but Stardew, and now you've got Sandrock Look. and Mexico <laughs> and Stardew. Yeah, I. Uh, it's kind of funny because actually talking to you and you all just just stream something else, you know, like have a go at it. What's the worst that could happen? So I kind of took that advice and, you know, um, it's been going good so far. Worst that could happen is nobody shows up, which means you need to stream something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which needs, you, it, it's always fun like that. You start streaming a game, no one shows up and you switch back to your old game and you and know, shows up. 15 minutes later, people start popping and going, oh, hey, I didn't know you were live. Like, yeah, I saw you there. <laughs> you got the notification. Nah. They definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> They're definitely lying. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about another tiny game nobody's heard of um, for a second. So I, I've been, I played a, a, this morning, I played a bunch of a game called Anticrypt. I played it for about two hours. Uh, Anticrypt is a, well, spelt A-N-T-E crypt. Um, this is the first game that was released by a studio called Punk Cake, um, who you may have heard of because recently put it, they put out a game called Shotgun King, which I was yelling about a whole bunch. Um, uh, yes, yes. So, uh, this is a top down shmup. It is available on itch.io, not on steam. I'll I'll plop a link in our chat if you guys want to look at it. Um, but it's it's got kind of a striking art style. It's got a bunch of like mind breaky effects which you can turn off. Thank the Lord. Um, but um, it, it's it's an interesting shmup because you can only shoot in the direction of this sphere that is bouncing around the arena. And kind of the whole shtick of the game is um, you are uh, a antivirus software. Um, stopping uh, these weird viruses from infecting humanity's last hard drive. Um, and uh, it's, it's a good thing that this is fantasy because otherwise humanity's last hard drive would be screwed. Um, but you have these batteries down at the bottom and uh, you reload the batteries by standing in the circle. But your laser only goes in the direction of the circle or your gun or whatever you're wielding or your grenade only goes to where the circle is. And the circle is just bouncing around. So you have to kind of like dodge the enemies, dodge their fire, as well as following this little circle um, to then fire at these bug things that are coming into the arena. It's a very simple little game loop, and I actually... I, I, I don't know how much I like it, because there is points where it becomes kind of frustrating, but considering it's a punk, a punk cake game, and they made it in a month, it's a really neat idea. Um, I think it would do really well to have something like a dodge roll, but because they make their games with specific limitations, and this game's limitation was that it was going to be a top-down shooter with no analog control and uh, only one button, and that's to fire, and then the alternate fire buttons or two fire buttons. It's very neat as an idea, and it ends up becoming quite satisfying to execute those shots however there there was several times when i was playing it when i felt like i just kind of lost because the circle decided to bounce in a direction that didn't make sense um but punk cakes a neat studio uh, i mean it's two people um one of them was the co-founder of motion twin who put out dead cells and uh then the other one was working on a uh, an engine who i actually spoke with this morning um as part of an interview that i'm working on for shotgun king um, and so I'm working through their backlog now and recording footage and checking out their previous works. And, uh, this was the first one on the list. So that's the first one that I took a look at and it's neat. I've, I, I've enjoyed my time with it. It looks like the kind of game where if you ever get stuck 
in an afternoon and you're like, I've played all my games in my library, or I've played all the ones I'm willing to try to play, and I don't have, like, too much time. I just want to kind of try out something new and blow stuff up. It looks like the perfect opportunity for that to me. Yeah. Just, like, hop on this weird little game. Almost, it doesn't mean anything if you, when you win or when you lose or how far you get. You just kind of go in there and start laser beaming stuff because you're a little bit bored and tried everything else. It is a it is a level based game, so there it's forty levels. It's it's not like it's randomly generated or anything. So they there are forty like designed levels that you go through. So you do progress through it, and I've beaten the first half of them. Um, all of their games are six bucks on itch, um, or seven dollars in Canada. But um, the the kind of shtick that they have is you give them three euros, which equals out to about four or five dollars ish on patreon and uh you just get their game every month they send you a itch.io an itch.io key and then a steam key afterwards if they put it on steam um so it, it's it's been enough that i've i'm supporting them on patreon now so i, I just get their games I'm, they're putting out a game in like four days and i can't wait it'll be fun nice looking at this i was like yeah this is again a game that's so you you know, <laughs> you yourself are a genre. I am a um, genre. <laughs> you are a genre. <laughs> At least I'm not a grenade. What? I always, so do you, do you not know that quote? No. Daisy founder. I, I can never remember his name off the top of my head, but the founder of Daisy who created the mod originally and uh, then went on to found Rocket Works, which is making that weird survival run-based thing where Icarus, everybody's in yeah. space suits. He's making that as as well as Stationeers. That guy, when he left the DayZ team, said, "I am a grenade. I pull out the pin and give everybody ideas, and then I leave them holding it." That was his quote about why he was leaving the studio. Basically, he says claims that he comes up with really good ideas, and then they fall apart in his hands, so he leaves before they fall apart. Um. So at least I'm not a grenade. I'll take genre. Right. The, the I... funny thing is, is I find this super relatable. Like, <laughs> if you, I, I have great ideas, but if you leave it to me to accomplish them, they will not be accomplished. Yep. I will, I will give great ideas to other people, but, geez, when it comes to following through on my ideas, my ADHD just goes, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm actually seeing, so, so I, I'm seeing all these games that uh, that you play blind and i actually get they seem very very different but i'm getting the same feeling from all of them i'm getting strong like late 90s nostalgia of different genres the mmo you were talking about before uh which is world seed uh reminds me of a game called war war which wasn't late 90s it was a little after that but it was kind of the same feel and uh and this totally feels like a flash game uh like like yeah. addictinggames.com flash oh, absolutely game. yeah <laughs> i would like i'm seeing the connection between these they're different but they're the same i have an aesthetic Look, I... and my aesthetic is games made by either very small teams or one crazy person who's really dedicated to an idea so flash games yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I, I maintain that you know like Blind watched The Matrix when Mr. Anderson was still in The Matrix and was like, I want that set up. All of the different PCs, the tapes, you know, late nights, 
passed out listening to some weird music. <laughs> Con DOS console window up. In <laughs> We're in a video call right now. If I push like two buttons, I could swap my mic setting out and my camera out for a record player and play you some music if you really want. <laughs> but I don't even have, I always shock people because I don't have a TV. I just have cassette tapes. <laughs> um, but uh, like 300 records or something too, right? You said on a you, previous episode. Yeah, roughly. I've got You've two. also got oh, the internet. That's true. But I work on the internet. That's job. No, but you've got a computer and a monitor. That's Who job. Who needs a TV nowadays? That's job. I don't want to entertain myself in front of job. Do you go to work to watch TV? Also, yes. I feel like <laughs> being at a desk eliminates the lounging it, it, it you can't relax at a desk in my opinion i can't relax at a desk it, well, i just can't the one time i do relax at a desk is when i'm playing door fortress yeah i mean that's a lot that's a segue mm -hmm. is it awakening <laughs> i'm not on a segue here i haven't fallen over yet my 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 segue i was going to throw in a segue of speaking of games that constantly update new versions and, and sequels and reiterate themselves. You know? Dwarf Fortress? Yeah. Well, Dwarf Fortress is a sequel. Sequel to what? Sequel. Slaves to Armok. Yeah. Slaves, yeah. Slaves Dwarf to Fortress Armok. is Slaves to Armok, uh, God of Blood, Chapter 2, uh, Dwarf Fortress. Yeah, you didn't know it was Chapter 2? Come on. What, you, Histories you of, of before? <laughs> randomly generated word and randomly generated word. I'm yeah. pretty sure the only way to figure that out is to actually load up the title screen of Dwarf Fortress. I don't think it's marketed anywhere as chapter two of anything. The, the full title for Dwarf Fortress is as follows, and I just loaded up the game to check. Slaves to Armok, God of Blood, chapter two, colon, Dwarf Fortress, histories of cupidity and toil is what I got. Does he update that every major update? Does he add something there? The histories of da-da-da like and da-da-da? No. That's it. Just pulls two. Uh, it pulls two random uh, words out of the game's dictionary. Just relaunched the game. Uh, Slave Stormlock, God of Blood, Chapter Two, Dwarf Fortress, Histories of Curiosity and Determination. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Let's see what else I get. Um, uh, Dwarf Fortress. Uh, uh, okay, Slave Stormlock, God of Blood, Chapter Two, Dwarf Fortress, Histories of Determination and Destruction. Sounds about right. And every fortress is actually a sequel to the last fortress. So it's full of sequels, really, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, Dwarf, Dwarf Fortress is... Um, Arch, I don't know if you've seen this before, but just go to... just Actually, just go to Google Images and type in Slaves to Armok. A-M-R-O-K. <laughs> because Slaves to Armok God of Blood was the game that Zack and Tarn worked on before they worked on Dwarf Fortress. And the end goal for it was to basically be what Dwarf Fortress is now, this endless forever game that randomly generates itself that's endlessly replayable, but it was fully 3D. Um, and and it seems to have graphics? Yep. And now it might make more sense why Dwarf Fortress hasn't had graphics for so long. <laughs> yeah, Dwarf Fortress is uh, actually a compromise. Dwarf Fortress was a game made because the original idea was just too big for a, the team so, like two people you know one per, almost just one person i'm pretty sure it, tarn does the majority of the work especially since it's such a code heavy game 
But anyway, yeah, oh, right, Dwarf right, Fortress right, right. Okay, is a compromise. So, yeah, I'm seeing some Dwarf of Fortress those. was a three-month like, side project to distract themselves from the game that they knew they would never finish. And they're still working I'm on that watch- three-month side project. I'm looking at those pictures, and I think I could find some worm online pictures from the early days that match it. Um, but also, when I look up slaves to Armok, it's got um, you know, <laughs> IMDb for some reason has an entry on Dwarf Fortress, like Dwarf Fortress Two. It looks like the Steam version, but it says Slaves to Armok, God of Blood, Chapter Two, Dwarf Fortress, and I was looking at those pictures going, like, I don't get it. It's full graphics. It's got the dwarves there. It's got trees there. Like, why? how is this bad? Then I realized it's the uh, the the updated shots that they're doing for the Steam launch. Yep. Also, you can still <laughs> download the original, unfinished, barely playable Slaves to Armok God of Blood at bay12games.com slash armok if you really want to see a website that was made in 2005. <gasps> There's a synopsis of Dwarf Fortress. I'm just going to... Wow, okay. Yeah, it's too big to get. Of Dwarf Fortress? In the year 233, Kakame Awer Dinner Day was the elf king of the dwarves. Wanting to expand his domain, he decided to set forth brave dwarves. And it just goes to all of this, and it's like someone one just, paragraph. Someone just ripped Legends mode and was like, this is the story <laughs> of Dwarf Fortress, <laughs> the game. Yeah. That's funny. Like, this, this is literally just how it's... Man, I need to review. Putting... Thank you. You've just given me content. I'm going to make a video reviewing the IMDb page for the story of Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> Thank oh, you man. for that. <laughs> That's my Saturday. <laughs> I like how it's not even a synopsis. They're literally writing a story. I mean, yeah, but and... Chris had been too drunk to, in the colonist briefing. He didn't know that he had to blah, 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 blah. Like, you're actually, this is just a written <laughs> novel. They wrote fan fiction. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> except there's there's no no like paragraphs there's no editing <laughs> huh it's a novel formatted like a like a synopsis <laughs> <laughs> oh my god could you imagine like dwarf fortress the disc set and you put on the back of the box like like just a freaking novel of a legends mode where it's just like in the year 153 you know, Urist joined, finally joined and settled down at the site of here in the fields of, you know, whatever. Steven Seagal is Dwarf <laughs> Fortress. You joke, but I, kn- I know I had a viewer pop in who was asking some questions about how to play Dwarf Fortress. And then their, their questions got kind of telling and we asked what version they were playing. And they backed out to the main menu and turns out they were playing on version three or point three, which was like 2014. And we asked why they were playing on such an old version. And he said, oh, that was, that's what was on the disc. And we're Where like, did you find this disc? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> he goes, well, you see, I just bought it at a store. And we're like, pardon? Apparently this oh. person went to a used game store and, um, bought a copy of Dwarf Fortress in a case with a printout of Dwarf Fortress as the case. And it came with a copy of the How to Play Dwarf Fortress book, which it came, came out in like 2013, yeah, there's, there's 12. There's such a thing. Yeah, it exists. I, uh, 
Zach and Tarn helped work on it, but like there, there's an updated PDF from it, but the book itself hasn't been updated since it was released. It was only one printing of it. It's a softcover book of how to play Dwarf Fortress. And someone somewhere owns a couple copies of those and is selling them off with boxed copies of an install of Dwarf Fortress. I still remember... Um... I had a friend who was, she was, you know, do you ever see that, um, trying to try the most polite way to put it. Do you ever see that episode of uh, how I met your mother where Katy Perry was sweetie or sunshine or something because she'd come in with the dumbest statement. Everyone would be like, Oh, sweetie. <laughs> she came in. My friend came in so proud of herself. She had just bought a copy of this um, this image editing software. Like, she got it on eBay. She only paid 10 bucks, super cheap. Pulled out a disc of GIMP, which <laughs> is a free-to-play. Okay. Yep, free-to-download. free to, free to download. <laughs> And I was like, oh, sweetie. <laughs> it's like buying a copy of Audacity. But... Yeah, so I, uh, th th I don't often get to talk about Dwarf Fortress on this podcast because, frankly, like, I'm the only person in this group of Halcyon Frequency who plays Dwarf Fortress at any regular interval. Um, Bellinair, one of the, our, our teammate from Finland who was on the last two episodes, uh, he, um, he actually has some credits in Stone Sense. He helped make some of the sprites for it. Um, and has played a lot of Dwarf Fortress, but not in a long time. And I managed to get him to play a, a couple of forts about a year and a half ago, but it's it's been a while again. Um, so for for me, I guess the, the the question is, when when you go about starting up a fortress, Tekkid, what what is your kind of go to setup? Like what what kind? How do you go about starting a fortress when you're playing Dwarf Fortress? Well, if I want to do a, and this is usually the case, if I want to do a very kind of big idea fort and I want it to have maybe waterfalls inside or a very specific setup in my metal industry or whatever, my first step is actually to make a mini fortress on the surface, just out of wood. I build a hut and uh, I basically create that as a staging point that's going to last me for one or two years to then carefree mine out and develop this framework for my fortress to be so i should say there, there's a important caveat here there's a reason i didn't make a how to start a fort video on my channel because i am an obsessive player i lock on to certain ideas and i I laser focus on them. So when I start my forts, I do that staging fort because it allows me to laser focus on, let's say, the, I don't know, the garbage dump of my fort, which can be way out of, of the league of what you'd expect a garbage dump to be. But um, so yeah, so my first, I don't recommend players start fortresses the way that I do. But if you're curious, it's usually by, by creating a sort of, overworld shack that i can operate out of so usually there's some farms a small 16 farm tiles uh a couple of animals breeding but i'm not doing anything with them yet uh four beds 
uh, a still and a couple of tables and chairs. And uh, that's pretty much it. There's a hospital in there too, but there's not much, not much to it. Not until I really get digging. For, for me, I, I, I spend the first bit in Legends mode and I read about the faction a bunch. And uh, then I, once I'm actually in Fortress mode, I set the population down so I don't get too many migrants right out of the, right out of the gate. I usually set it down to about 50 or 60. And then I spend like the, the first two years obsessively reading about every single dwarf in the fort and just kind of like letting them live in kind of the, the rock pit that ends up inevitably getting dug out somewhere, put up a bunch of beds, make a little dormitory and a makeshift tavern thingy, and just kind of let the dwarves like function for the first two years until they eventually live in their lavish wonders. But I kind of wanted to tell a little story about the fortress that I just started this past week because it is one of the strangest factions I've ever encountered. I so dwarven factions have varying like types of cultures and music and gods and things that really kind of give you like a, a pretty vivid image of the culture of this faction that you're playing with. And the 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 faction that I'm currently playing with um is the the plank of something. I, I need to like actually look on my YouTube channel or remind myself of the name of it. But I I've built this fort um and uh Pretty quickly, we realized that something was off. My first seven, okay, but before I built the fort in 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 like legends mode, reading about this faction, um, all of the 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 whole the entirety of this faction is two forts. They have one mountain home, which is like your main their main fort, with a very low population, only three hundred dwarves, which is pretty low for a mountain home, and then a helix, which is a hill fort, basically a farming hub that is connected to the mountain home and feeds them with food and whatnot. Um, and that, that Helix only has a hundred dwarves. I'm like, well, that's, that's awfully small. So maybe we'll be like helping rebuild a faction. The Plank of Nations is the name of the faction. And, um, we get in there and uh, I get my, my starting seven and they're all female. I'm like, wow, that's strange. Cause normally it's like kind of a mix, right? Yeah. Start playing. First migrant wave shows up. Every single one of the migrants is female. This is also strange. Where's my bearded like dwarves yeah, building away building away the third migrant wave shows up all female except except for four there was about 10 in the third one so half of them are male okay all the male are fisher dwarves I'm like this is really weird i look at the faction the queen of the faction is a gelder i start looking like into their... <laughs> i start looking into their gods all of the gods are represented by female dwarves one of them skeletal dwarves um, one, one of them is a skeletal female dwarf and their gods are all gods of misery and torture, death and destruction. The one male represented god is the god of reproduction and pregnancy. Pretty sure there's a Nicolas Cage movie about this. <laughs> and we're just like sitting there like reading about this faction going like what in the world? <laughs> um... And so I, 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 yeah, I, I think I've found a cult. Also, the most popular form of music is called um, future metal, um, which is pretty fantastic. So I named the tavern the Marsh Pit because Marsh doesn't exist. So we're a bunch of uh, heavy metal uh, Amazons, I guess. That's <laughs> With hilarious. A very small portion of the population being male dwarves, and. That's the first time I've seen anything like that in Dwarf Fort. I, uh, I have a similar female-focused uh, fort. Actually, it's Singe Metal, which I am doing as a bloodline fort with Roland from the round table. And uh, 
I looked up, this is one of the rare times I actually spent a good amount of time looking up the history of my civilization. Usually, I check out what gods they have, and I sort of just kind of infer from there. But in this case, I wanted to know the history of Singe Metal, and every, uh, every monarch was a queen. And it was like year 250. It was not... Uh, no, it was year like 500. So there's like six monarchs. And uh, so the lit it was every queen worshiped the same deity except for the first who worshiped the deity of fate ironically dying like the next year uh the last queen got turned into a werewolf and then killed somewhere and the queen that replaced her worshiped the god that had turned her into a werewolf so it was like this string of queens that worshiped this god and then uh, as soon as one of them toppled this other statue, they were like, okay, well, we should worship this other god that turned our pra- past queen into a werewolf, you know, out of vengeance or whatever. And there were some other things about fighting the elves, or joining the elves in combat on, like, a yearly basis to just repeatedly hummel this uh, goblin site called Watchbad every year. We and the dwarves, or we and the elves, would just go to Watchbad and beat things up. Like, oh, how many goblins came back this year? Let's stab them. And it was like a sport. It was like a like a combat sport at that point. Like, kill the goblins at Watchbad. And uh, there was some interesting history there with them, too. Uh, I haven't gone back to see what's happened in the 10 years or something that, that the fortress has been alive for uh, since we started it. But... It was an interesting little history. And it's only similar in the sense that it was also an all-female monarchy over 500 years. I, I have a, a, a sort of similar story to the, the Watchbad thing. Um, I, I had a world that I generated a while ago, which I did a bunch of different forts in. Um, and one of the things that we discovered in this world, because I, I sometimes will like just upload my save, the world file to like Google Drive or something and give it to chat and let them go nuts with it. Um, one of my audience members found this one goblin fort that was head up and run by a skunk demon who wielded two spears. This one goblin fort got attacked about 250 times a year by all of the surrounding sites. Humans, goblins, dwarves, everybody. Everything attacked this one site. And this one demon in this one fort had tens of thousands of kills. Wow. Every single year, all of these armies would converge on this one site, and it was just like this unstoppable wall, to the point where I even joined in with my fortress and attacked it a couple of times, and every time, all of my soldiers would either either die or get captured. Every single time. Eventually, one of my audience members sent in an adventurer and killed it. But it's like... The ultimate defense, apparently, is just skunk odor. You know, as long as you got that on your side, no one can can break you. It's like trying to fight through smoke. You just can't do it. Like, smoke wall appears? It's like, I can't see where I'm going. Oh, I'm dead. I had a a world I generated the first time I ever really looked into Legends mode, and I discovered that... Uh, the undead apocalypse, which happens to most worlds as time goes on long enough, isn't always as flat and uh, and bland as you might assume. 
in this case, this world had succumbed to a, not a civilization, actually. They started as a group that just popped out of nowhere in, in the, the fields someday, uh, led by, uh, what was it, a badger man? Some animal person, necromancer. Uh, and he had obtained the help of a dwarf who had fought in a couple of wars and uh, become quite good as a warrior. And that dwarf died. He resurrected him. And this dwarf became a very talented warrior uh, and undead and won many fights on behalf of, I remember, Badger Man, we'll say, a Necromancer. And then at a certain point, this necromancer, thanks to the exploits of this dwarf, uh, who had his own like emotional past, basically took over the entire world. This one necromancer faction, and they had killed the goblins. They were wiped out. Everyone was pretty much wiped out. There was like one dwarven civilization with two sites still alive. More animals were alive than dwarves in those sites, and uh, and. It's funny because they weren't even listed on the civilization list. They weren't a civilization. They owned all of the sites, though. They owned the entire world. But they started as this lowly band of bandits, you know, from some fields led by some badger man necromancer. Man, it's like the story of Steve Jobs and Apple. Right. <laughs> <laughs> lowly band of bandits, yeah. and now they run the world. Um, yep. I, I do actually have some, like, sort of news. Um, every Friday and Monday... Uh, Zach and Tarn have been taking turns posting on Bay 12. And um, for the premium release, uh, the, uh, Zach posted this today uh, where he says, let's talk about toggleable difficulty settings. Uh, there will be difficulty settings where you can adjust the wealth triggers and frequency of invasions, thieves, and beast attacks, and it will be customizable just as if you'd been editing the text files, but you can set them when you embark. So we're going to get adjustable difficulty settings for each embark. Nice which is actually extremely cool because yeah. I thought that they would be tied to the world. And currently it's tied to your text settings in the, in the INI files in the back end. But like being mm. able to set frequency of invasions at the start of an embark is really cool. Cause you can yeah, just be yeah. like, I'm in a very violence heavy zone. Fuck me up fam. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. And they are world settings right now. Cause they're in the advanced world generation menu those things are listed in there. So they are currently set for the whole world. Maybe you could change them after a world's generated through the init files. But like right now, you pretty much set it for the whole world. And yeah. I think, in my opinion, well, first of all, that's awesome. That, you know, that's a solution. Uh, I also think that certain things, it might be great if they excluded certain things that you make as a source of wealth that invaders will consider because you know how you have like created wealth imported wealth and then you have a breakdown of what kind of categories are generating your wealth i think it would be nice if invaders ignored prepared meals unless they fix the absurd value of prepared meals because once you cook like five pot roasts the entire world is like we need to invade this utopian bastion of wealth and fame because they have five pot roasts okay and we couldn't even dream of tasting such a miracle 
Yeah, I really hope that they fix the value of meals because it is a little bit ridiculous that like a well-cooked steak in Dwarf Fortress is more valuable than like an entire house worth of valuables. Um, Yeah. There's there's one other thing that uh, Zach mentions here, which I think is incredible, which is, and if you think that that's a waste of time, uh, you can now buy them off as they will demand an artifact as a bribe before they attack. Hmm. That's very interesting. Is something I've been shouting about for a long time. Yeah. Because I've I always, always wanted a I giant like... to show up and demand pants. Because giants don't wear pants. Yes, Arch. You're still on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, what? no, that's okay. It's okay. It's 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 Dwarf Fortress time. <laughs> it's Dwarfin time. <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, like, because I, I play RimWorld a lot, and it's like, that'd be nice there too if they turned up and went, hey, we're going to attack. Give us this. Give us your table! Yeah. With the inscriptions like, on it. And believe. You see, the thing is, is you get that happen when you're roaming in Rimworld. You know, you'll actually get a pop-up that says, you know, one tribesman has accosted your three guys in, like, the best armor. And he demands this, your 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 gems or whatever you've got. It's like three space marines Otherwise he'll fight with spear. <laughs> yeah, and it's always really, really off. But it'd be really kind of cool if you had that happen in raids. Because it would be like, do I really want to fight them all, or can I just be like, look, I don't Here, feel like. Here, take Charlie. With it's a... fine. Just we don't yeah, like. I him. don't feel like dealing with a tribal attack. Go have you know all of this extra human leather that I've got sitting down from the last tribal attack. <laughs> well, in Rimworld, they they don't give you an option to do any sort of negotiation, but they do have the raiders. Uh, take a certain amount of stuff and then leave satisfied sometimes. Don't they sometimes take, like, apparently impact uh, wrenches with them and take your doors off and just, like, leave with your doors? They're like, ah, oh, I like this door, you know? Never mind um, what's behind it. We're out of here. So they, yeah, they can loot things. I don't think I've ever had them steal a door, In but the they can, like, loot your tables and stuff. Do stuff like that. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I've not... The, the new raid mechanics are so vastly different. They've all got giant breacher weapons now, and they can just destroy any wall you've got. Um, but yeah, they do. If they can't find anyone to fight, they eventually give up and just loot everything and leave. One other thing that uh, Zach notes at the bottom of this is also the number of trees that it takes to piss off the elves has been greatly reduced. Really? Yeah. So previous... Previously, it would take like 120 trees or something per year to piss them off. And then they would show up and ask you to not chop down more than 120 trees a year. And then they'd like lower that number slowly. Um, but uh, now it's been greatly reduced. Um, well, I, I, I've always been pro-elves because I think that they bring the best trade goods and are boring to fight. But um, apparently they've all... I'll, I'll just... I'll, I'll read this little expert. Uh, this little ex, ex, excerpt from what uh, Zach wrote. And I'm going to make a video about this later. But um, the elves are also getting reworked to make them more of a challenge. The number of trees felled that takes to anger them has been greatly reduced and their attacks are more deadly. These settings can also be changed if you choose. But watch out for when you start in the Savage Lands as you are in for a surprise along with the rest of the horrible stuff we have planned for the weekend. So apparently they're going to post something over the weekend. So probably by the time this podcast is up, but like interesting. I hope that they if if they want trees to piss off the elves, that's fine. You know? The tree the elves can be even more radical in their ideology. But please 
don't let mushroom trees piss off the elves. Like, why can't... I, I mean, it's fungus, right? They shouldn't care. They shouldn't care about tunnel tube. If I want to give them something in a tunnel tube bin, you know? Because otherwise, the elves are like a... They're kind of a barrier if you... Uh, uh, if you're in a place where the elves visit you frequently and they get pissed off that easily, it's like, how do you build beds without going to war with the elves? So I'd just like to point out the idea of the elves being just blindly looking for a reason to hate you for cutting down any form of tree, even mushroom tree. I mean, it's pretty fitting for an elf, isn't it? The, the elves yeah. are cannibalistic yeah. eco-terrorists. They're basically Dwarf Fortress pay- Dwarf Fortress's PETA. You cut down a tree and they're like, my son! And you're like, the heck is wrong with you there, sir? But they should, I feel like, because mushroom trees come with their own risks, you know? So I feel like they should be a separate thing with separate risks and the overland trees. But, you know, this is all stuff I should probably, like, you know, call Tarn on his personal number and rant at him about. Because His email's on the website, you know that, right? Oh, no, I did not know that, but now that I know. Bay12games.com slash dwarves, and you click contact, and it's Tony1 at Bay12games.com. Listen, Tarn, I'm your greatest influencer. I just want (laughs) you to know that. I have, like, a lot of subscribers. (laughs) Just drink a lot of isopropyl coffee. Call his number and leave a very rambly, drunken message on his his voicemail. Oh, uh, mushroom trees be happy with it. I don't know, man. Just make it do something about it. Uh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, the, the one thing that I do like to point out is like, you do know that like everything that the elves don't want traded to them if you have a skilled broker shows up as red. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, problem is. It's all obvious. You, Just don't trade the red stuff. Usually, my forts will take advantage of metals, and they'll take advantage of uh, rocks to make containers for things. But in example, this current fort, where the only source of metal is sphalerite, which copper makes ugly bins. I mean, I'm sorry, copper bins are so it's ugly, bad, I won't make it's bad them. Bad color. Yeah. So, and it's at the magma sea. I have to mine between the magma sea to get any metal in my current fort. So. I just used wood bins, which sucks. I hate using wood bins, but I did it. So everything is in wood in this fort. So I just can't trade with the elves. They're just like, sorry, guys. You make rock but... pots. And then just put your meals in rock pots and trade them one like, biscuit and they'll be happy. That is a great question. I don't have, I don't have a, a satisfying answer for that. I just don't want to. <laughs> That's fair. That's what I've been doing in Long Death for decades, because I've got, like, really nothing I can trade to the elves except for, like, swords, and I feel like arming the elves is not a good idea, so I've just been selling them, like, a pot of food, and I'll give them, like, an extra pot of food as a bonus, and they're always thrilled, and then they give me unicorns. It's great. And then I cook the unicorns and give them the unicorns in the pots next time. I feel like a bunch of Dwarf Fortress players sitting around is exactly the same as a bunch of Warhammer players, uh, not Warhammer, or well, could be Warhammer, but also D and D players that are like, yeah. "Oh, my character does this, my party does this," and someone's like, "Oh yeah, my party did something similar," and then it would be like, "Oh yeah, check it. Remember, you know, here's a st- here's an adventure my party did that was dumb." And it's like, "Oh, that's hilarious. Here's an adventure my party did that was dumb," and it just goes back and forth. It's not one upping. But you're basically sharing the dumb stuff that happens with someone else that finally understands 
how silly or or lucky or dumb it is. And <laughs> the 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 thing that's sad about people who play Dwarf Fortress is we don't have friends to play games with. Or it's like me where we opt to not play games with other people. <laughs> or it's like I still I love that structure and I love the storytelling that you get out of D&D. I hate the process of playing D&D. Look. It can be very hit and miss. I am quite blessed but, that, like, the, the the people I play with, I met online when I was still in Australia. They were the ones that said, hey, you should come to New Zealand so we can play D&D in person. And I was like, I don't know, that sounds expensive. And they went, hey, here's the plane ticket. And I said, okay, uh, I still need to get my passport. So they're like, hey, here's the money for your passport. By the way, what's your blood type? Um, <laughs> but no, um, so they're the people that I met online and basically became friends with. They helped me get over to New Zealand and we now play D&D twice a week, you know, and it's, it's, it's sort of like the success story of finding a group where they suddenly become real good friends that are more than just people you play D&D with. But I've also played D&D with people who one DM we worked out that he was just giving us World of Warcraft quests. Like, we, we literally got into a, a place and he's like, oh yeah, there's tons of goblins in there. I'll give you, um, I'll give you each uh, 50 silver for, or yeah, five gold for every goblin ear you bring back. And he's like, I want about 50. And we're just like, okay. And I got a message, is this guy just giving us World of Warcraft quests? Like, it was literally, like, a, one of the zones in, in World of Warcraft. And then we had one that, um, the group that I joined, before I joined, the space opened up because, basically, this guy couldn't seduce the evil witch and make her his, his girlfriend. And so, there are negatives, <laughs> you know, you're never going to find, that like, playing Dwarf Fortress that you're going to have a guy like that. Like, it's really good... In, in, in social circles, having a and d party that you get on with, but there are very many pitfalls. Yep. And I can absolutely yeah, understand being, yep, don't, don't want to. Fortress them. scratches all of the itches of D&D without actually having to play D&D. But it's also, at the same time, an incredibly obsessive management game, which scratches a lot of other itches that D&D doesn't even come close to. Yeah, look... I, I, you said at the start of this, oh, if we haven't convinced Arch to play, I will be playing when it comes out on Steam, right? I, I want that graphical, graphical thing, you know? And I you am, want it to I, look pretty. I want it to look pretty. I mean, look at the last game I played, my time at Sandrock, you know? <laughs> it's terrifying. Mix of ludonarrative dissonance. Uh, Sorry, I have to drop ludonarrative dissonance like once every three podcasts. Uh, just give me, let me quickly Google that. <laughs> it basically means it's a bright, colorful game with a dark, dingy storyline, and it one doesn't fit the other. Oh, the short version. it's funny because it's directly for games, yet that also comes. Mm -hmm. I love it in music as well. Like, Hey Ya is one of my favorite examples of that, you know? My baby don't mess around because she loves me so, and this I know for sure. But does she really want to, but can't stand the thought of me walking out the door? Like, and it's all this upbeat song. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just that or like visuals. almost any pop punk song where he's just singing about cutting himself in a really happy, upbeat tune. Except for Adam's song. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it, it it's Dwarf Fortress is a fin- fantastic game that we could talk about for all day. But we're two hours into this recording. We haven't done news yet. So I think we should go to a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the news from this week. Hi, this is Tudikiri. I'm a full-time content creator and Twitch streamer focusing on indie and strategy games. I'm advocating accessibility in video games, especially when it comes to simulation sickness. I love chatting with my wholesome community, achievement hunting, and winter. Look for Tudikiri on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon. And now, back to the podcast. Talk about what games you've what, got on April your phone. 1st. We just talk about Clash of Clans for two hours. Uh, I've been playing Clash Royale a lot more. Raid Shadow no, Legends. we're not getting paid to talk about Raid Shadow Legends. <laughs> we can't talk about Raid Shadow Legends. Yeah, yeah. They they pay a lot for, for, for you to talk about it. Why would we do that for free? Yeah, naturally. They have to pay us at least $1,000 a person to talk about Raid Shadow Legends on this podcast. Anyway, I'm going I'm to take us back in for news. And we're back with the Halcyon Frequency Podcast, episode 20. I'm Blind, and I'm hosting, and I'm joined by Tekid, our guest host, and Arch Plays Stuff. And um, today in the news, uh, we're all going to take a moment to laugh at Seth Green for getting his NFT stolen. Um, so, <laughs> did, did either of you guys catch this when this happened? I did. I So, Seth Green had a, or had, a bored ape. Um, which was supposed to star in its own live-action TV show um, with the bored ape itself uh, playing a bartender um, in this show. Um, However, uh, his bored ape, uh, which is bored ape, of course, number uh, 8398, um, who's named Fred, by the way, um, was stolen in a phishing scam out of uh, Seth Green's wallet. And so, by uh, NFT BS law, he now ha- no longer has the rights to that image, and thus the uh, production of the show that he has created for this ape to increase the value of the ape, obviously, um, has uh, now been halted. And uh, someone else has Hilarious. purchased uh, this bored ape off of the uh, scammer who uh, stole it from Seth Green. Um so it's it's now in the hands of a new owner, owner, and Seth Green is politely asking him to uh, give him the ape. Oh man, this is—is <laughs> is it even? I don't even think it qualifies as like poetic justice. It's just funny. <laughs> it's, it's not even—it's not even justice. It's just like I'm just gonna sit here and enjoy the Schadenfreude for a minute. Like I don't know too much about Seth Green. Like I. I, I know that he's done a bunch of voice acting work and stuff in video games, and I'm familiar with the name, and I've definitely heard his voice before, but it's like, I can't not laugh at this. And Arch is posting stuff in the, um, from Cyanide and Happiness in the uh, Discord yep. here. What so is it, Cyanide and Happiness put out a thing saying they won't do NFTs, and they're saying, if you see one that was enough, if you bought, by, bought one by us, you got scammed also, lol. And then someone was like, I don't know why you had to add the also lol there. People shouldn't glorify vulnerable people being scammed. To which Side Night and Happiness replied, NFT bros losing money is funnier than any of our comics. And it's it's all I can think about, you know. 
This is funnier than anything Seth Green has done. He could turn around and say it was theatrical art and people would be like, okay, that's funny. But, oh my gosh. It's like it's like watching a, a it's like watching a clown slip and fall for real, you know. Like this is you were already a clown, so I'm supposed to laugh at you anyway. But and now you fell down. I like I I feel like I should be sorry for finding this also funny. But honestly, the show like, goes on. I mean, the 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 only thing he could do right now, or or the best thing he could do right now, swap out the board eight character for anything else. And just ha- give him an absolute rage for crypto bros, and just that have that a running thing. Anytime someone mentions crypto, he just gets really angry because he was scammed once, and now he hates it. <laughs> I mean the 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 serious side of this though is like if you purchase a piece of art, like a, a an art piece, and you hang it on your wall, right, and you you own the rights to that art piece, let's just say, and you, you have a picture of it on your blog. And a thief breaks into your house at night and steals the art piece off your wall, takes it, and then sells it to some wealthy person in another country for an exorbitant amount of money. You still own the rights to that image, and you can still keep it on your website. That is stolen art, and it should be returned to you. But when you have a completely decentralized market like this, there is no legal grounds for the person who's purchased this stolen property to give the ape back whatsoever. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and so... That's the funniest thing with, with NFTs in general, because they argue that that's the benefit of them. You know, they, they're like, you've got proof of ownership. It is in, inherently tied to this. You lose that proof of ownership. There is nothing else you can do. And the other thing I'm, I've been trying to find it, it's, it was a tweet by someone who talked about the downside of, um, of all of this. and how Seth Green's <laughs> Seth Green's uh show was never likely to actually get anywhere because you have the bored apes are uh, procedurally generated and some the only difference is a dif- different background color right when you own a bored ape you own the background color as well the facial expressions you change that background color it's a different bored ape you you open the eyes, it's a different board ape. You get rid of the halo, it's a different one. He could not have actually animated that because any animation to it would have changed it and it would have been someone else's work. And so that's why a lot of people are like, you know, how far along was this project? And is this just a bit of a, you know, oh, I was really hoping to do something with this kind of thing. Because yeah, um, there's a there's a lot that's actually sitting there that doesn't make sense in using like it's it's like buying a monet and then say oh i can just basically make a wallpaper out of it i can i can change it so it looks like a picasso or 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 something you know you own it as a static image you can't transform it in any way Mm -hmm. you can make people pay to look at it but that's about it Yeah. And I actually, I watched a short video that I'm not educated completely on NFTs, but I watched a short video about legal rights and stuff associated with them. And as far as I learned, the court system cannot defend unless you have 
written a contract, license transfers and rights transfers with NFTs. There's if if someone buys an NFT from you, even if you wrote up a contract that said you now have all of the rights and you own the copyright and you and I no longer have rights to reproduce this and sell it or whatever, uh, they can't. They have to write that contract up all over again for the next person that buys it. So the person who currently owns this image supposedly probably does not own the rights to the art. They probably only own the NFT, which is a sort of link to or description of computerized digital description of like if it's procedural, then whatever code or or values variables make up what that image becomes is what they own. But I could draw this image with some crayons and animate it and put it on TV if I wanted to, like assuming that they didn't go through the legal contracts to actually sell rights to artwork, like copyrights and licenses, then they didn't do that. That's the exact thing. And it, it happened recently an NFT of a book was found. So they were like, oh, we're going to make a movie of it. It's like, no, you own the NFT of the book. You do not own the rights to the book um, and all of that. And yeah. the whole thing is just incredibly, incredibly dumb. And I mean, what do we expect when we talk about NFTs? There's, they're, they're, they're a solution to a problem that doesn't exist, you know? Because they're so, so just... They're the creation of a problem and it's not a solution to the problem that they've created. Exactly, exactly, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I, I, yeah. Just sell the copyright. I would like to take a moment to shout out the Twitter account, at Web3, the number three, is great, um, which is a, a, like, multiple times a day, this Twitter account posts articles and write-ups on everything that's going absolutely horribly wrong <laughs> with <Yep>. cryptocurrency, <laughs> NFTs, and everything related to Web3, run by somebody who is a Web3 enthusiast who's been in the industry since its inception. Um, and it is some of the best absolute goddamn schadenfreude on the internet right now. Um, so, you know, if you want that sent to your Twitter feed every day, um, at Web3 is going just great. Yeah, it's it's. I thought I was following it already because i've seen so much of it i must have been probably me retweeting it (laughs) yeah it probably no i follow it on my my professional account that that explains Ah. it um but yeah it is so funny just looking through going like like the biggest problem is is the way you um address all of the issues is by centralizing it but that's why, you know, the whole, the whole point of all of this is, oh, it's decentralized. Yes. That's mm-hmm. because that's, <laughs> that's a bad thing. <laughs> it kind of makes you wonder. Uh, so this, so Seth Green got quote scammed unquote, and the artwork was stolen by way of scam. But is there such a thing as scamming on a decentralized network or is there just being stupid and giving someone something because if it's decentralized who's the authority to say that was a uh uh illegitimate purchase like you just you just screwed up you just sold someone something on accident like i don't get scammed if i accidentally tip my hairdresser six hundred dollars instead of six dollars i mean 
how did he get scammed? There's no, there is no authority behind any of the transactions. He just gave somebody something in exchange, so the, the, like a personal cash transaction. The, the way something gets swiped out of your wallet is because everybody's wallet address is public. Anything can be inserted into your wallet, right? Like someone can just like the reason the 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 uh, meme coin, uh, do uh, not Dogecoin. Um, what's the other one? The yeah, Shiba coin. My Doge, man. When she when Shiba coin became a thing, the creators of Shiba coin gave it was like five hundred million or something Shiba coin to the founder of Ethereum. They just gave it to him. They put it in his wallet without his knowledge <laughs> they just did it and that transfer made everybody go oh ethereum founder just must have just bought a bunch of shiba coins so we should all buy this which inflated it by like ten thousand percent and the founders cashed out and made a bunch of money um but um with, with, with nfts anybody can put anything into anybody's nft wallet now an nft itself can only hold a very 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 small amount of memory but it's enough that you can put a little bit of code or a jpeg or a link or something in there but there's enough space in there that you can put something to fish with it so you can just go that person has a very valuable wallet here i put this nft in there that looks very similar to your other nfts and then they go what's this and they tap it and just by interacting with it it eats their wallet and transfers it to somebody else Oh, so it's not just a scam. They actually use basically a virus Literally. to <laughs> steal. Okay. All right. I thought they were just like running a site where they were just like, uh -huh, you know, uh, you know, weird scammers send us gift cards or whatever, or give us your no, account information. It, and he just screwed it's up. It's much more insidious than that. Well, technically he did just screw up because somebody must have sent him something that transferred it out of his wallet. But it's like, a number of weeks ago, the all my apes are gone thing that happened. And then the board ape yacht club somehow returned his apes to him because that's what, the, that's what a lot of these are is they're phishing scams. So something so will show people, up in your wallet and you'll be like, what's that? Touch it. And all your stuff's gone. People want to introduce computer viruses to their wallet. Yeah. That's, this is the future of, of financial interactions. They're like, Hey, imagine if you had a wallet full of cash, but Russia could just Russian hackers, you know, could not, you know what hackers. I mean. Russian hackers could just steal it. Sorry, Russia and whatever. Maybe someone but, could just steal you know, it. hackers could just steal it with a with a computer virus. They could a, a chain email could steal your wallet. It'd be like opening up an email that empties your bank account. That's hilariously <laughs> stupid. Just this, these are the clowns, and one of them fell over, and now it's just more funny. Just imagine in the future someone helping their grandma because they lost their grandma opened a suspicious NFT and lost all her bored apes. I'm, I'm sorry, I know that was that was our inheritance that you've just lost. Right? Just put your money under the mattress. Your mattress can't be targeted by chain emails. <laughs> Depends on if it's a smart mattress or not. Um, on a bit more of a oh, serious boy. tone, but also good news, uh, Raven Software over the past several months, feels like I'm close to a year now, uh, basically for the majority of this year so far, for the past five months, uh, Raven Software's QA team specifically, and if you're unfamiliar, that's one of the teams that works on Call of Duty, um, has been in the process of forming a union. Um, at, just last week, uh, a 30-person group mailed in ballots uh, to the National Labor Relations Board in April at the beginning of April, uh, leading to an official count on Monday. Uh, 19 workers voted yes with uh, three votes against, 
and uh, so they have formed the first uh, ga- games development union in North America. Well, in the States. So it's actually a first. I was wondering how first this This is was. the first workers union for the games industry in America. Um, it's called the Game Workers Alliance, and they will move to contract contact blah, contract no- negotiations uh, with Activision Blizzard. Um, I'm getting this article off of Polygon. I will link to the full article if you would like. Um, then uh, it was like Tuesday, a few days later, uh, Phil Spencer came out and uh, stated that mi- because the Microsoft is currently looming over Activision Blizzard uh, as part of the, the buyout that is in process, and uh, Phil Spencer came out and s- t- uh, today to say that um, uh, they will be supporting uh, the Game Workers Alliance, uh, and uh, they will absolutely support the employees and their efforts to unionize, So, which is kind of it- impressive, but makes sense considering he's buying it, or... Microsoft's buying it. Look, yeah. I yeah. Phil Spencer has been someone that I've been continually, continually proud of. Um, proud's probably not the word. Impressed with. Um, you know, he is someone that, as he continues to to push Microsoft and all of that, he's put his money where his mouth is. You know, they've they've not just talked about, oh, we want to see more of this, we want to see more of that. They've been doing a lot of work for that um you know in in driving that and i've been continually impressed with a lot of xbox's stuff around you know diversity gender inclusion and all of that and you know i think i don't know if i spoke about it on the podcast before but basically you know we are going into june which is pride pride history month or pride month one pride month they put up the they made the xbox rainbow they had so many people getting really upset that at the end of the month, when it went into July, they put up, psych, it's Pride Month 2. And they used a different rainbow logo. And then they got to they, the third month, they put up rainbow, uh, Pride Month 3, and they were using the Halo numbers. And then they were like, it's Pride Month Infinite now. And, you know, I thought that was really great. It's basically anyone who complained just went longer. And, you know, this along with this and the buyout and how, how outspoken Phil Spencer has been in support of positive business practices. And yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, you know, I get the impression that money is put or, you know, the money is put being, being put where the mouth is. And in other words, you know, he is supporting this, not just because Microsoft has to, but because, you know, he believes in this. And I, and I do hope it continues because it means positive things for the game industry. You know, especially, like, as someone who's worked in the game industry, the general thing of is, yeah, you could get paid a lot better outside the game industry, but we all do it here because we love it. And so often that is just taken advantage of. And that doesn't fly when you're the most profitable media format in existence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And I used to think that I, I used to think that food service was the biggest disparity between the people who owned it, owned the industry, and people who worked the industry. But honestly, the games industry is right up there in terms of disparity of of wealth, and it really shows. I read this article, and uh, what stood out to me the most was how it said uh, that they'll their pay will be increased to $20 an hour. 
and they'll be given access to bonuses and benefits. If you're working for less than $20 an hour without bonuses or benefits in the year 2022, you don't have an adult job. You're not supported yeah. well financially. You have to make more than $20 an hour and you have to have benefits or else you're basically in poverty in 2022. So an increase to that is what were they making before? What were you paying these minimum people wage. that their argument is 20? Mm -hmm. They were making they, they were making minimum wage in QA at Raven. Yeah, and now they, they also said something about uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a tactic to fight this by putting QA testers into embedded positions. Yeah, they... Does that mean hire them as actual employees? Uh, no, that... Well, I'm not sure what it was, but the intention there was instead of a QA department, you would have two QA people assigned to the art department, two QA people assigned to the environment department. So you didn't, they wouldn't, weren't able to talk with each other. They wouldn't be able to actually connect and talk. They were split up and sort of, yeah, which is like, you know, when you got two troublesome people at school, when you're sitting with your friend and your teacher make you sit in different spots. It was just that, you know, it was nothing but a blind attempt to, if we split them up, they can't talk as much and can't organize as much. And, and yeah, like I am absolutely horrified by it all. And it's really, it's really good to see this come. Um, because I think a lot of people kind of overlook how, just how shitty the entire situation was, you know, they were just, they were just like laid off. And then it came out that they were earning minimum wage and you know, they'd done all this work and they'd made these big changes in order to continue. And then Activision Blizzard was just like, nah, you're gone. And so it's really good to see this come. I am super hopeful that it means a big change within the industry as well, because um, what else was I thinking of? The way several studios, you know, basically just dissolve overnight and it turns out they're they were all paid absolutely nothing. And, um, you know, there was no support, no protection for any of the workers there. It uh, is truly horrifying when you dig into those things. Yeah. And what surprised me the most about that pay, too, is I, I don't, this is an industry I don't know too much about, but I expect that it's easier to be a, an employee any kind of employee for a games company if you live at least nearby the headquarters. Even if you can do most of the work from home, if your studio is in LA, you're probably hiring people from the LA area to do your Q&A. And to think that people in these areas where entertainment is being produced, which is high value you know, high housing costs and stuff like that. To think that they were getting paid minimum wage, you might as well, you know, you might as well beg with a cardboard sign for your money at that point. If you're living in LA, you know, $18 an hour, even 20. The freakish thing no. about uh, Raven Software is they're in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, they're in the middle of nowhere. But what's terrifying is be the way these workers were or the way this QA department was treated before these union efforts were started was once a year, they would get cut back um, because they, they work on, they're a support studio for Call of Duty, right? So currently they're mostly working on Warzone, the 
ongoing live game. And right at the beginning of the year, their QA team got cut back heavily. And because people moved to Madison, Wisconsin to work at Raven, um, and because they are the main game dev house in the city, when you get laid off, there's no work there if you already live there, which is what started these unionization efforts at the beginning because they went through a round of layoffs, half the QA team lost their jobs on a live game that's not going anywhere that needs a lot of QA and is notorious for being buggy and broken because their QA is underpaid and overworked and they have a very strict release schedule. So at, le at the very least in LA, if you get laid off, there's more work around. You know, if, you, if you're working game dev in Vancouver, Canada, there's like four other studios you could go work for. If you're in Madison, Wisconsin, good luck. <laughs> like oh. you're unemployed and now you can't afford your rent. <laughs> oh. Even though it's Wisconsin, it's still like it's Madison, Wisconsin. You know, you're not in like the total boonies. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, just to, right now in the current state of things, housing prices in any urban area are pretty out of uh, control. We're not from America. Wisconsin sounds like the boonies to all of us. It is the boonies, <laughs> but every state, every state has like, I'm from Illinois. Most of Illinois is a cornfield. And by most of Illinois is a cornfield, I mean, I'm pretty sure literally the majority of the landmass of Illinois is covered in corn. But if you live in anywhere nearby an urban center, like nearby Chicagoland, it's out of control. The prices of things are out of control. You're paying $5,000 a year in just taxes for your paid off home. It's insane. So like, even though it's Wisconsin, if it's Milwaukee or Madison, Wisconsin, I imagine it doesn't matter that it's Wisconsin. You're you're probably still paying nearly a grand a month for rent. And there isn't for a, an apartment. Much in the work of game dev out there. It's 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 sort of like um, London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, if you live out there and you work in game dev, you work for one studio, and that's the Warf the people who make Warframe. That's that studio. Um, that's that's the game dev house that's out there. If if you work there and then for some reason you can't work there anymore, then you're out of a job and you have to move cities. Which is the uh, nice thing about New Zealand because there's um there's actually a surprising amount of uh, game dev studios like really super indie ones in um in Wellington, uh, and then you've and got... everything's really close together because the country is so small you can drive across it in a reasonable amount of time. It's an eight hour drive from the tip of the North Island to the South Island uh, to the bottom. That's of the, a reasonable amount to the of bottom time. of the North Island. That's it's a reasonable amount of time. For That's one state. Me to get like from <laughs> here, it it takes it takes me four hours in a car driving fast to get to Hope. That's this is that takes you to the mountain range that is halfway across my province, and that, I'm already a th like a quarter of the way across. That's one funny thing because Kiri in her last stream before her holiday was talking about how she was taking a plane because it was going to be an eight hour drive. And then all these people are like, oh, an eight-hour drive, I do that, rah, rah, rah. She's like, you don't understand. For you, an eight-hour drive is like across the state border. An eight-hour drive in, in Europe can be multiple countries, you know? And I'm like, I wouldn't even get out of, uh, out of New South Wales back in Australia in an eight-hour drive. <laughs> me, me and my friend in 2019 went to a metal festival in Edmonton. And we took a plane so that we didn't need to get on a bus for 19 hours. 
because neither of us drive. The, driving it normally would be about a 12-hour drive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I might be doing a trip to a friend's place who's not even halfway across the country, and I'm not even the West Coast, so halfway to the East Coast from already, like, in the country. Uh, it's going to be probably a 12-hour drive just to get to his place. He's in Texas. I'm in Colorado. So, like, that's not even – you're not even getting close to the Geography East Coast. Geography is you're too not even big. halfway there. That that's that's uh-huh. that's what I'm saying. The world's too big. We I need to shrink it. That's my podcast title. Geography is too big. <laughs> it was between that and Thomas the Tank Engine lore deep dive. Oh yeah. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic tank engine. I I'm a little bit concerned about how often the random dumb things I say wind up being the podcast title. <laughs> I mean, are you complaining? <laughs> it's pretty par for the course with me. Well, on the topic of long drives, this has been a long podcast, so I think we should wind down. Thank you very much, Tekid, for being our first full episode guest. Uh, and so now I'm going to give you the floor and say, uh, tell the lovely listeners of this podcast where they can find your work and who the heck you are and uh, where they can stalk you and watch your stuff. Uh, well, I am Tekid, and you can find my videos of obsessively precise Dwarf Fortress management advice not advice, instructions, bad advice, good instructions on YouTube. Uh, just the channel's called Tekkud, T-E-K-K-U-D. Also, I stream three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday on Twitch. Uh, same channel name, T-E-K-K-U-D. Uh, and you might not see too much new stuff on my YouTube channel until premium comes out, but I'll be there. I'm always there thinking about something to do next, and you'll still be able to find me on Twitch three days a week doing something, something crazy, something unwise on Dwarf Fortress. And Arch, you know the drill. Yeah, I do know the drill. You can find me on uh, Twitch at twitch.tv slash archplaysstuff. Um, I won't spell that out because it's pretty much a whole bunch of uh, regular words we all know, I hope. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm playing a lot of chill games, a lot of, lot of ambient sort of style games. Um, also on Twitter at Archplay Stuff, and I don't use YouTube at the moment, though. Keep an eye out. And uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash blindirl, youtube.com, same name, Twitter, same name. I do actually tweet now, so you can follow me on Twitter, and you'll actually get stuff tweeted. Uh, if you want to get more episodes of this podcast, you can find that at uh, halcyonfrequency.com, where the full archive is housed. Uh, it's also available on most podcast platforms that you listen to. If it's not available and one you happen to enjoy, please send me a DM and I will make it appear there. Um, if you would like to uh, get updates on stuff that we do directly, go to the website and you can find links to the team's Twitter and as well as the team's Discord. On the team's Discord, you can get notifications when this stuff goes live. This podcast also appears on YouTube on the Halcyon Frequency YouTube channel, although we don't advertise it that much. Um, so listen to the audio versions, but the YouTube versions there as well if you'd like it. And uh, I think that's pretty much everything. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening to this episode. There probably won't 
question mark be an episode next week because I don't think anybody's available to record. It's my birthday, so I will be gone and won't be able to record. And it's like one of our team members' spouse's birthdays and somebody else is on vacation, Bellinaire's in a different country, and Suey's finishing school. So I, I don't know. There might not be an episode next week. If there isn't an episode next week, I'll make sure there's something in the feed just letting you know that we weren't able to record just a two-minute thing. Two hours of Arch and, talking uh, to himself. It sounds absolutely perfect. Arch talks about stuff would be the name of that episode. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so if there isn't an episode next week, there will definitely be something the week after because it is Halcyon Frequency's birthday. So we need to figure out some sort of big shebang with all of us or as many of us as we can cram into the room at the same time. Um, so there will be something the week after at the very least and then podcast will continue as per normal. But uh, thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast and uh, you'll hear us again when you hear us. So now is when we say goodbye awkwardly roughly at the same time. So... Bye. Bye. See ya. Can I do that bye again? Sure. No. Okay. I'm not editing that out.